At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, the podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here with... Lucy! Hello! We are finally reunited in meat space. Yeah, we're touching each other, we're touching each other. Uh, We finally reunited in meat space to deliver an especially spicy package for you, our first double episode. We are going to be taking you from the obscure origins of 90s found footage horror... All the way to modern computer screen nastiness. Lucy, take it away. All right, yeah, well, I mean, before we do that, I I should also just, like, flag up that in doing so, we're also embarking on the thing that's going to be the theme of this fourth season of Weird Signal, that is Fucked Americana. Uh, And... Exactly what that means. I think we, like, we we tipped our hats to it in the last episode. Um, But, yeah, we're, like... We're going to be defining that over the two films we're talking about tonight, and indeed over the course of this series. And should we name the two films? Yes, we are doing The Last Broadcast and Dashcam. Yeah, 1998 and 2021, respectively. Oh, that was 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 a a meaty click. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's going to sound... I saw the red light going, that's going to sound so, so good. All right. Uh, um, so, dash. So, <laughs> you're so, doing okay. Lucy is going to be guiding us through the last broadcast, yeah. and I am going to be dealing with dash cam. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're all going to be dealing with a lot of things in the course of this episode. <laughs> That's the weird signal problem. Yes. Uh, so, um, basically, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Synopsis. I had heard of the factor fiction murders. They were big news for a period of one year, and then like so many things in today's fast-paced world, were forgotten. I was intrigued by how this case, this story was so well documented, how in spite of the remote location of the murders and the rural nature of the people prosecuting Jim, that these were murders of a high-tech age. I was intrigued by the fact that the four individuals were indeed children of a digital age. Mostly though, I wondered why the man named Jim Seward would commit such horrendous acts of violence. Stephen Abelos and Lance Wheeler in 1998. The last broadcast is a film that, well, I, I don't know, I think I should just like say straight up, I was going to give a straight synopsis, um, but it's like, it's difficult to do so because it's like the plot itself is the phenomenon, but I'm going to try. So it's basically, it takes the form of a pseudo documentary uh, and a murder investigation. Uh, the plot is that it follows these two guys, Stephen, quote-unquote, Johnny Avcast and Locus Wheeler, who are basically two public access cable guys who have a show where they talk about the paranormal and stuff, like a couple of losers. <laughs> and, um, yeah, basically, yeah, it's called Fact or Fiction, and they, they uh, do these kind of, like, quirky kind of, um, 
idiosyncratic investigations of things, and then via the IRC channel, which becomes a very like insignificant thing um, in the in the process of events, they get prompted to like conduct an investigation into the the case of the Jersey Devil, the notorious cryptid. Um, so they get a team together, which includes a guy who can record like spirit audio stuff in a very kind of neo stone tapey way. Well, in a way that like would become very famous in. Sh- Shit like ghost adventures, <laughs> um, but yeah, am I fucking this up? I don't know. You're fucking this no, up. No, um, yeah, so shit like ghost adventures, and uh, crucially, um, also employ the services of a psychic, um, who then goes from a, like a kind of like erratic personality who is like you know cr- creates a, a fucked vibe, but in doing so, kind of like leads them into the woods, and um, by virtue of just like everything he does on camera becomes um, suspect in what becomes their murder. And they're in the woods by mysterious forces uh, that um, basically the, the police investigation that follows immediately pins on the psychic whose name I have overlooked. Oh yeah, so uh, and the, the psychic is named uh, James Jim Seward, um, who's, yeah, he's then accused of the murders and then kind of like dies in police custody, I think, I don't even, I can't just remember if, like, if the trial, well, I think he's, like, he's ruled guilty pretty quickly, but, um, what follows the events there is, um, basically, uh, another filmmaker who's actually presented in, in the opening credits as the maker of the film, doing a documentary about this process, uh, because... He's the presenter yeah, of what we're watching. Yeah, yeah, he's, and his name is, uh, David Beard, um, well, no, his, he's played by David Beard, uh, as David Lee, the filmmaker, and he basically does a documentary into like whether this was a kind of frame up, and um, find is like kind of like well things take an odd turn because he's then kind of like sent a mysterious package containing a bunch of like fucked additional footage which was like previously thought to be the last you know um, which is like you know the 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 uh, Actually, no, it's not the eponymous last broadcast. The last broadcast is the fact that they do it through a live stream. Um, but I can talk more about that in a minute. But and, and it's yeah, a, and, and yeah. Clear, you know, this is a, yeah. this is a janky '90s live stream. Yeah, it's... this was on dial-up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, um, I'm assuming you've like watched the film if you're listening to this. But please do. Uh, yeah, over the course of investigations, he just essentially tries to kind of like recreate the events leading up to it, um, which lead him to murder one of his fellow investigators, a lady called Michelle Monarch, who's uh, helping kind of like restore the videotape that he, he's um, sent. And so winds up the film, The Last Broadcast. Yeah, and yeah. it just very eerily ends with him wandering around the woods, talking into, it's like talking to a microphone we can see is unplugged and just yeah. talking into like a camera that I don't think is turned on. And just doing multiple takes, which is kind of, yeah, that goes, that becomes quite significant. But yeah. Um, so there's a lot to unpack about this, not least because as a film, it is extremely conscious of what it is doing in that like uh, there's a lot of points which I you know just bit of a bit of behind the scenes for this episode I kind of like I watched it a couple of months back I think we I don't know if we'd resolved to actually cover it in the podcast at that point but watched it a couple of months back and um 
a lot of things I remember being like, ah, oh, yeah, these are definitely kind of like talking points that I can bring up that I that I remember having independently observed of the film. And then rewatching it, I realized like, oh wait, no, ev like so much stuff is there in the text of the film. Like very early on, the guy, the direct, you know, the um the putative director who's doing the documentary actually says like, yeah. So one thing I was curious about was how the internet played a kind of like very literal and very and but also quite abstract role in the events, both shaping them and like adjusting kind of interpretations and things. And yeah, and so like we, we, we prefaced up front, this was um, internet horror, but I think it's like worth going into kind of like what that means in this context. Cause it's both, cause it was like, you know, something crossed out of the material. Like um, the, yeah, as I mentioned, it was like, actually did I mention that it's, yeah, it was broadcast to, um, two cinemas on its release. Uh, it was like, no, like webcast. It was like streamed from a central location and then it was like the video streams online <laughs> that would go, the projected, which like, I can't imagine how that looked because this was the era when you would have to like, as many of us did, wait an entire afternoon to download or, you know, st or like wait for, wait for the fucking Phantom Menace trailer to buff <laughs> before you can watch it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, cause, and, and to place this in a little bit of a historical context, because we mentioned, you know, mentioned this as being you know, the obscure origins of 90s found footage, which is, of course, is a genre we associate most readily with the Blair Witch Project. So that's inter what's interesting about the relationship between the last broadcast and Blair Witch is it did come out before um, Blair Witch, but they were... Um, no, no, what's the other way around? It did come out before Blair Witch. It did Witch. come out before Blair Witch, but it went into production after Blair Witch had, had, had gone into production itself. So they kind yeah. of like, they're, they're happening sort of independently of each other, but they're also very much, very much products of the same kind of like cultural environment. You know, it's, it feels like it's only this, only, it, it was only that point in history, you know, sort of like the early mid, early to mid 90s, where you, you could start making things as like self-referential as this i mm. guess i mean obviously not like literally it never happened before but you know that's like you know it, it's there was something about the 90sness of it that produced things like Blair Witch project and the last broadcast yeah. because the, and with um and with the uh last broadcast like you like, like it's interesting when you said there that you know it it's you know, these are things that are very present in the text. Yeah. And it is a much more knowingly postmodern film than The Blair Witch Project mm -hmm. is, you know, because the, the Blair Witch Project is att attempts to present itself as being, you know, real, just in, in a very like plain literally way. literally found, yeah, yeah, like yeah, barely yeah. edited. And while the last broadcast is, you know, sort of like, you you are aware that it is a film. It is not, it is not pretending not to be and like i said and at the end you do have that you know like the kind of like holy mountain almost you know sort of the camera pull back moment of like just being really sort of like confronted with the the artificiality of what it is you'll see yeah and i think yeah um there there are more kind of like theoretical territories that i want to lean into in a minute but i think it is yeah very much worth discussing up front the the strange circumstances of the production but um I just wanted to add, like, as well as being very explicit in, like, what it sees itself as doing, um, it is, it is, you know, it is, well, the two guys that produced it are actually, I think they're now both kind of, like, experimental filmmakers or, like, so they're kind of, like, they're people who are, like, kind of in the art world, but, like, also kind of cross over as just kind of general public intellectuals and they're involved in academia, I think. I hadn't... I had it noted down that like one of them like taught at NYU and Columbia and is still doing a lot of like 
basically has 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 since then been doing different iterations of the the whole idea of like um creating new forms of narrative through um through new media um and yeah and so and so having yeah have embraced kind of like web 2 and 3.0 in the same way that um this is em- embracing kind of the potential of web 1.0 um it's also kind of like interest like two points that are like kind of interesting points of comparison with the Blair Witch one um is that um well it's it's interesting like you know we talk about like the 90s and like what made this possible because um what's significant is like well you know I actually read like a couple of like contemporary articles and they they are as well as being like the you know thematically inclined um, filmmakers, they are tech nerds, and they kind of like they they a lot of the early interviews and things are with like camera magazines and shit. Where them and it's just them talking about all the kind of really clever workarounds they did to make this for like, I oh fuck no, it was yeah the budget was quote unquote nine hundred dollars, which is wild, but like. It was basically, you know, that's 90s money, so it's obviously a bit more now, but it was like, it's basically all made on commercially available um, film equipment. And what wasn't commercially available, they essentially borrowed. Like, they talk about going to, like, being involved with other filmmakers and being like, okay, you've got a, you've got a lighting rig set up, can we just come and use that for a bit? Um, but also, yeah, it is very much kind of like, it is doing something on the budget of what is being depicted, which is an amateur documentary and a cable news show, or, you know, a, a, a cable public access gimmick show. Um, but what's significant is, like, yeah, the emergence of found footage, because this this isn't really a found footage in the kind of pure sense that Blair Witch was, but, but in that, like, some of it deals with found footage, but it's, like, kind of, it is, the main thrust of the film is the stuff surrounding it, which is, you know, a more consciously made, like, actively... Um, engineered well up until a certain point an actively created thing yeah because it's um, yeah because yeah. it's yeah because it's um it incorporates a found footage element but for the most part up until the last last quarter last third it's present it's you know it is being presented as you know like bbc ghost watch no, yeah it's a documentary is yeah. what you're watching but you, you, yeah and then it kind of becomes its own found footage film weirdly mm. um but yeah like the the thing is it's like kind of it was the combination of that technology making the conceit of found footage possible um, in that, like, I guess, you know, like, because it's commercial, you know, it's it's cameras that anyone can own. I mean, technically, anyone could have had, like, a kind of, like, film, a random, like, documentary film that was shot and stuff, you know, at, at a different point in time. But I suppose they always had, like, Super 8 and things. But, um, but it's that kind of, like, decentralization and the fact that it could just, like, it's... It's a what you know stuff being filmed is now a wide enough phenomenon that stuff that you know like UFOs or whatever stuff that would have eluded capture suddenly elevates <laughs> um, and and, yeah. as, and as well as that you know like, like elevates in frequency of um, actually being captured yeah and I think thankfully like, the cameras were rolling <laughs> and with uh, <laughs> and with um, as well as that, I think there's also you know there's a movement in towards these things being much more acceptable to be into you know it's less the you know sort of like. Uh, the asthmatic AV club nerds, you know, and it's much more like a thing you can sort of do with a kind of air of respectability almost, you know, yeah. like it's, uh, yeah, it, it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say, like, just like wrapping up on the kind of production point is the fact that um, vis-a-vis like Blair Witch Project, there was actually a kind of like, there was a, there was fake news around the release of Blair Witch because, um, 
uh, this is something I dug into. There was this like kind of like engine like artificial beef created by like e entertainment network of basically um there were claims like unsubstantiated claims but about the um blair witch ripped off uh the last broadcast and that there was this you know there was going to be like a lawsuit in the offing by um Avalo um by avalos and wheeler uh, against hackson studios and like they actually um I think it was, like, uh, an article in Wired which actually, like, debunked this because they interviewed them and was like, no, we're pals. We've independent, <laughs> you know, we've acknowledged that we came up with these ideas completely independently of each other. It's kind of cool that this happened at the same time. They're um, friends. Yeah, they're our friends. We <laughs> hang out, you know, we're, we're pals. Um, and, yeah, so it's like, um, so that happened. Um, that's weird. But we're dealing with um, what we're also witnessing uh, in that kind of, additional kind of like meta level is the is the creation of like you know early stages post truth which is uh you know that 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 buzzword that definitely needs to be unpicked like relentlessly because it has given rise to a million like a myriad of like liberal fabrications and conspiracy theories um about various things but but yeah it's like i don't know i think it's very useful that we're comparing uh, these two films, Dash Cam and Last Broadcast, because they are kind of dealing with very similar material in that sense. Um, so I wanted to kind of like talk a bit about kind of like what the what the background to that idea is, because it's like we we talk about like post you know this the the twenty sixteen iteration of you know, disinformation misinformation post truth politics and stuff as being a kind of like thing born of the internet, but it you know it was something that was already kind of prefixed in a lot of um, kind of postmodern literature from people like Lyotard or Frederick Jameson or, um, yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it has its origins in sociological concepts like the, the putative, like, um, what is it, like the crisis of representation that uh, Jürgen Habermas talked about. Um, but that's, yeah, that's something I want to get onto in a sec, but I just wanted to kind of like frame like the what I see is the kind of like kernel of you know, the theoretical kernel that the film is very actively dealing with, which is the idea of kind of like mediated reality and the nature of truth and how um and how like how well you know the, as they say explicitly in the text how uh, the act of something being filmed um changes the circum you know changes the reality of it of it happening. They talk about it as kind of like. The um, mediatization is the process of, well, they, I'm referring to a specific um, article I found, well, actually I read a couple of months ago, which was by, uh, what, Veritoltz and et al. Um, but yeah, they, they talk about how, like, um, uh, social and political activities fuse inextricably with their own mediation. Um, and, you know, and <laughs> if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read a quote. I'm yeah. yeah, the quote I was um, kind of leaning towards is like, this came up in one of the articles, uh, the interviews I read uh, with the creators, and the quote is, um, In the last broadcast, we play with the idea of the information age. We play with the way public opinion works, adds Avalos. The media shows one side of an event, and people are very quick to believe. Um, that quickness is part of what prompts protagonist David Lee... Actually, this is the... This is the uh, editorialising. That quickness is part of what prompts protagonist David Lee to take another look at the murders. Have things really been examined, or is the public just reaching for an answer? The whole point is aiming at something, somebody saying, this is the truth, says Avalos, referring to a camera. 
nothing's admissible as evidence anymore, notes Wheeler. The moment you put a cut in, you put a cut in or distort any semblance of time, the truth is gone. And I think it's just like, um, it's worth just like flagging up the, the intense kind of like mesh of different things happening in the film that kind of reflect this point, because it's like, it's, actually no, I, I think, no, I'm, I'm gonna belay that. So, um, so yeah, so I want to get onto like theoretical context. So we, I want to talk briefly about the idea of postmodernism, which is like a much abused term. <laughs> um, and yeah, and and it seems actually wait, this is clipping really quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's like yeah. Um, so it's a much abused term, postmodernism. But the actual kind of like the core definition of it, or like or at least one like working core core definition, is um, what Leotard describes as the um, the decline of cred credibility of grand meta narratives. Um, and to kind of like unpack what that means, we've kind of got to go back a little bit to well, what we were talking about in the last episode, the idea of the enlightenment and the kind of like the rational, um, well, the, I think you, you defined it best as kind of like the univocality of truth. The idea that, um, that there was a singular kind of, a singular concept of truth that could be reached through scientific process, which was possible through the kind of rationality of enough or possible through the interaction of enough rational minds focused on a subject and um and that this created a kind of like teleological process that um from this like simple equation of like facts and logic plus facts and logic equals progress that uh civilization will kind of reach this um this perfectedness um and Basically, that is the meta-narrative, because um, that that process I've just described, that simple equation of, like, truth being found through the proper channels, these proper, like, transparent, rational spaces in which um, truth is divulged, that, um, that, takes that takes place in the context of a wider narrative in which all of these things, in a kind of plurality, are working together to advance humanity in a particular direction. That's the meta-narrative. And the kind of collapse in the believability of this idea through just like the sustained failures to see that happen and the um the fact that like that simple equation is is a bit too simple and um and so often kind of like elides relevant material factors uh that leads to the postmodern condition which is that um humanity or you know culture has to reckon with the absence of these certainties and so um so yeah so that's so that's you know what i mean by that and that is the backdrop on which um on which we see the rise of this thing we talk about i'm just going to use post-truth as a kind of shorthand for it but um in this context it's like the decentralization of knowledge, the idea that, well, because one of the things that emerged out of this is like, we have the grand enlightenment narrative, which one of its, um, or, you know, just the, the history of the enlightenment. And one of the things that emerged out of it was the formation of like grand institutions, like large state institutions as the um, author 
as the authorities on particular functions of politics and social life and economics and things. So it's academia, it's uh, the judiciary, and it's democracy. Um, and so, like, what the what the kind of collapse of the meta narrative in this context means is the fact that um, with this, because because these people are presented as you know the epistemic authorities the people with the access to most facts and logic <laughs> or it's the best facts well, the, the most facts and the best logic <laughs> that um that they would um that you know they that what they put out becomes kind of like legitimated through its proximity to these institutions and um and i guess like kind of what the crisis of representation means is is, is essentially kind of like the, the the waning of credibility of, of these institutions which um which takes you know which was theorized in like the 1970s but is kind of accelerated by the rise of um of decentralized technology include you know from like kind of small press and things but then it, then kind of magnified by the um the mass kind of circulation of the internet which um Interesting timelines, actually, because this, the events of this, of, like, the last broadcast supposedly took place in, like, 1994. Um, and it was only in 1993 that the internet had actually become a, um, available to a mass market. Because up until that point, it did exist, you know, the ver a version more or less resembling what we had now. But it was only really available to major institutions. Like, uh, it was centered on universities and, you know, going back decades, there were like four things and it was just like MIT and like the military and various, um, I think there was, yeah, four things, I can't remember what they are now, but, um, but that, um, that is, you know, that is the context in which we're, we're seeing this, this idea that like, already we've got this, um, well, among these institutions is the mainstream press. Is um is the kind of you know is CNN? It's the New York Post or the New York Times. It's these kind of like lauded gatekeepers of authority, um or you know author authoritative presentation of um of world events. And this authority is eroded by the internet. <laughs> um, so that's the context. Um and you know, the, the kind of cultural context, this idea of like postmodern decentralized crisis of representation in which the events of this film take place. Um, but a very kind of crucial particular uh, aspect of that, I mentioned earlier kind of the judiciary or like kind of legal forums as the, um, as a particular significant institution in that. And um, it's important to flag up, well, I think the law um, in particular is um a specific um is is kind of the ideal par excellence example of this happening because it deals with things that have multiple kind of like subjective components you know active in them like um unreliable testimonies uh prejudice um poor you know poor police work and motivations that aren't being kind of treated with the same kind of transparency and um this actual, well, you know, the, the history of kind of like the law and uh, as a forum for creating a particular kind of truth is something that Mikhail Foucault has written on in great detail in an essay, uh, which is in type, which I read uh, in prep for this, but um, it's called Truth and Judicial Forms. Um, so, yeah, in the essay, uh, I've not had time to do a kind of like a full breakdown of it because it's like a 
it's like a history from antiquity to the present. Um, but basically it's the idea that the function of justice and the kind of truth it created was something that, um, that kind of went through a series of successive stages and um, was shaped by the kind of other kind of like modes of state and civic institutions surrounding it. So kind of like ancient justice was an appeal to divinity. It was kind of like, and it has that same kind of like, you know, we're doing necessary kind of like deductive application to these things, but the main authority is something is is something that is ineffable and we have to kind of like, um, we, we have to limit our part in that. And this is, you know, then reflected, he talks about like medieval courts and the whole thing of like trial by combat having a divine element. But then um, this kind of shifting in like, you know, the Carolinian empire and the idea that um, as well as there being kind of like these cosmic forces present in the idea of law, um, it's necessarily codified as to like who, as well as, you know, the question of who is the criminal, um, it's where we start to get introduced ideas of, like, who is the victim, who is being affected by this. And it shifted, like, it shifts from, like, um, if you do a crime, the main person you're doing a crime against is the monarch, is the king. And then um, later that advances to you're, you're committing a crime against an aggrieved public, or you're committing a crime against the institution itself. Um, and he just goes into great detail about, like, the various kind of reconfigurations. Um, and, you know, and the patterns that emerge from that, and that leads up to kind of like the modern day. And yeah, and so we find ourselves in 1998 in the woods, <laughs> um, <laughs> investigating, um, well, essentially what we're looking at is a legal investigation. Um, and what well, we, we've seen like kind of like the, the failure of a kind of like adequately kind of forensic investigation. Uh, we've seen something that's proved as kind of bias, but we're also seeing different figures um, creating their own kinds of both, well, kind of creating like, I guess, different like subjectivities, I'm wanting to say, like um, the fact that like, we the main kind of, the person who like is seen as kind of aggressor, but then becomes victim is someone who staked a lot of their kind of was staked their involvement in it on an appeal to something that was per that was like only visible to them, which is, you know, we're dealing with a psychic. So we've got some sort of like resurgence of ancient justice present or, you know, like of a more kind of like ancient cognitive model present in this stupid public access show. But then we've got a documentary maker who uh, presents what he's doing as this intensely forensic thing and is collaborating with someone, you know, using modern cutting edge technology to restore footage. Um, but what's interesting is like the documentary maker is the one who gives us most of these insights about, you know, the distortions that mediatization can create. And then, you know, starts out as the authority and then becomes an increasingly unreliable narrator until he's saying like one of the, I'm gonna possibly like just insert the line here, but one of the final. I know that the truth is still at large potentially closer than anyone can realize. It is as though the real killer planned a media event so amazingly cunning that it could be thought of as scripted, a kill ready for prime time, so to speak. Perhaps the demon we call the Jersey Devil did kill them in the Pine Barrens. But if so, the Jersey Devil is the electronic image, the sound, the communication to the masses, 
somehow twisted into a surrealist electronic world. You know, like like the guy in the Proboscis Luke post <laughs> um, talks about, um, oh yeah, so, you know, it felt demonic. It felt like something in the medium reaching out to try and fuck with us. But it's like, it's like okay, that's the, that's the purpose of the film. But he is crazy at this point. <laughs> Something's triggered his brain and like, we don't know what's triggered his brain. So it's p- possible that yes, this is something that's equally fucked at play. But I don't know, I just think that's like, I just, I just think that's a very kind of elegant thing of like, setting up everything in text, but then leaving it open for, you know, it sets up the failure of the grand meta-narrative and then leaves it open to just further failure. Um, but yeah, that then resulted in them getting accused of trying to start a beef with Haxon's film. So, yeah. So what we're, what we're saying here, just to, just to just remind the listeners of the time here, uh, the, um, is, 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 is the film is, is it's a dramatisation of truth as a construction, as a, as a thing that is not delivered out of, out of the heavens, it is something that is made by human activity, and that the, the advent of new methods of sharing information, the internet, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and before that... And before that, you know, just the whole of the twentieth century media landscape, which culminates in the, which culminates in the digital experience, act, you know, just through its like material being, just undermining the uh, the ability to to create a single mono truth. Yeah. You know, uh, and and this is something you know we hear about um, uh, hear, hear people complain about the decline in the mono culture. This is also a of a, a decline the of the ability to advance a single narrative line or a single uh, ideological cultural line yeah um and that's kind of like yeah that's something that um and just to just to go back to the idea of the collapse of the meta narrative it's like what we're seeing is um well what something i've you know like i've studied and i've kind of like worked on myself is what we witness in the absence of a meta narrative and like kind of ways to create kind of ways to kind of salvage the liberal institution uh, in its absence. So one of, well, one of the things I was talking, one of the things actually I've talked about is like the case of Bellingcat, um, because that's the very kind of like, that is the crystallization of this idea of like um, creating forensic truths by removing, by, you know, completing, uh, you know, completing the process and removing any kind of like um, authority beyond the materials because like they're, uh, I don't know if like listeners have like followed their work, but it's basically. Do you want to just maybe just explain very briefly what Bellingcat, Bellingcat is in, ca- in is case like, people don't know? Yeah, it presented itself as a kind of like civilian investigatory unit. So they describe themselves as gen- as journalists, but at the same time say that they're like completely dissimilar from, or that they are distinct from the traditional model of journalism, which was kind of like pro- often profit oriented, uh, kind of like kind of hoarded takes and scoops and stuff you know because there was like there was a financial imperative to make the kind of revelations and stuff um and stakes that like our only claim to truth is what we're able to verify through um the the mass of material available to us um which we've like essentially crowdsourced um the process of analyzing so you know to give examples they talk about um this, this is actually in the We Are Bellingcat book. They talk about, um, there's a video of a soldier in Syria claiming that, I think it was pro-government forces have captured this town. Um, and people are like, but how do we know what's going on here? And 
Elliot Higgins, who's the author and one of the main founders, talks about how he was able to use Google Maps to look at um, to look at kind of like buildings in the background and verify, oh yeah, he is in this place. And it's like, um, and then, you know, locate, you know, present things purely objectively as like, look, this is everything on the ground and all, all logic inc implies that like, yes, he is here. And if he's walking around like that, he's not like under fire and stuff. So therefore is, it's pretty safe to say that they have indeed captured this town and this is true or something to that effect. And they became very famous for uh, doing stuff like um, they were they played a major role in uh, establishing a kind of train of evidence in the Skirpal poisonings. I was about to yeah. mention that, yes. Yeah, and... Um, so I will just say, like, one of the things that is just... I, I remember reading that is genuinely funny, is that, like, they did... They sort of, like, the pictures are sort of, like, the class of, you know, basically Russian super spies was just available on the internet, like, <laughs> on their website, the, 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 the Russian super spy academy class of 08 or whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, that was quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so, like, but, like, one of the things that's significant about this is the fact that, um, they've essentially bypassed the institution by saying, like, you know, this is our truth, this is, the truth can now only be found in the minutiae of all available, you know, open source data, and this is treated as something that's like, oh, this is fantastic, because, you know, propaganda can't exist anymore because it's like or untruth can't exist anymore because there is this now kind of like purely transparent economy of like ambient accountability is one of the terms used of just like yeah um if anyone says anything it, it will be like kind of disbelieved and stuff but um so you know there especially you know in the unfolding events between kind of russia and ukraine in in the last over the last year now um, Bellingcat and other kind of similar organizations have been leaned on heavily as these kind of bastions protecting democracy from the kind of the threat of a post-truth world in which, t you know, and the author inter inherent authoritarianism of disinformation. Um, but what's significant as well is like, it also came to light that um, Bellingcat was being used to pretty much as a pipeline to get CAA stuff into mainstream news positions and stuff. And also it's like, um, they're extremely selective about who they cover. Like, they have, I think, two articles about Israel. And, like, one of them is just saying, actually, no, it's fake news that the, the Iron Dome doesn't always work. And the other one is, like, we debunked <laughs> a, like, Hamas video from 2005. And, like, that's it. And it's, um, yeah. And basically, you know, there were also some, like, email leaks that pretty much indicated that they were being used as a kind of, like, smear operation thing. So it's, like... It's idea that kind of um, even that this kind of like minutia has has meant that like I don't know like sometimes you know the whole idea of kind of postmodernism the thing that um, Leotard spends the entire book dissecting is this idea of like um, how narrative creates authority because it creates presents a kind of certain logic to events but at the same time it's like sometimes having an idea of like political logic behind things is useful and um, stepping back and, and making big picture analyses is like, is useful, but it's kind of just interesting seeing where kind of, I don't know, like the, the unclarity that can arise from over fixation on minutia and stuff. And like, and the fact that like, you know, the, the, the I mean, I, the, I want to yeah. say, I want to say that you've just described 
the conspiracy theory there. Yeah. You know, the unclarity and the fixation of minutia. Yeah. It's per- yeah, yeah. a perfect articulation of what the, the conspiratorial mindset is and what it produces. Mm. Um, also, I, I don't know, I'm not sure, sorry, yeah, I'm fiddling with it, I'm destroying a sticker, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but basically, yeah, um, one of the other, like, interesting, like, is all this over- open source investigation really the, the bastion of, like, you know, preserving truth and authority in that, uh, did you guys hear about the, the Boston Marathon bombing and how, like, Reddit basically did try to do a similar thing, it was like, we're going to do open source investigation to establish who, um, who committed the Boston Marathon bombing, accused the wrong guy. I think someone got killed. And um, and just, like, it was solved by just, like, traditional police. <laughs> and, and it was just, like, the, the, the phrase that emerged out of that was, we did it, Reddit. <laughs> like, yeah, we were the heroes of this day. We, we just... We, we fucked up so badly, but we, we thought we were doing so much good. Because, you know, like the, the, like the classic Foucauldian position, right, you know, is that you can't really separate knowledge and power or yeah. truth and power, you know. So, and the, um, and, you know, with the, 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 the decentralization of the methods of the manufacturing of knowledge, mm-hmm. um, doesn't necessarily, you know, that decentralization doesn't mean it's been democratized. Uh, it it just means that there are more avenues of power available than there were before, mm. which it can be it can be a good thing. It can also be a, it can it can be a bad thing as well. You know, it can be the, an annoying. Thing. It can be an annoying thing. You know, yeah. it's not you know these you know it's we, we don't live in the Manichaean universe. You know, where it's just you know where we just have you know sort of like the two opposing positive and negative forces. You know, like it is it's always it's always complicates itself at every single mm. at every level it, yeah. it, it, it um the the relationship between truth and power and knowledge and capital and desire and mm. the spirit always becomes these things often do become very difficult to distinguish it's like um we may not have done away with the idea of meta narratives so much as the singularity of the meta narrative <sighs> Uh, the meta meta narrative. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> just think about that. You're also very very nicely setting up some points for yeah. when we get to dash. So yeah, yeah, and I think kind of like that was the main like theory bit. I don't want to talk about this because it's like, uh, but I just wanted to kind of like you know use that as like what does that set us up for you know talking about how does that set us up for going into like what is the horror of the internet. Um, what, what are yeah? What are the fucked America vibes? Yeah, well, what are the fucked America vibes? But what are what are the kind of like the hauntedness things? So I think yeah, let's start with uh, let's start with eerie and move on to weird <laughs> um, in classic yeah um, classic fashion. But like yeah, I think I want to go back to that line where like he starts talking about the the Jersey Devil as being kind of like this this creation of the internet, and it's like kind of he's, he he may not. I mean, I mean, if we want to like. Just the absence and abundance of presence. I can't remember the specifics of that whole thing we did a podcast about, but <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like um, it t- it takes a different kind of um, it's scary in a different way whether you believe that or not because it's like um, what he could he could be talking. It you know he blurs the lines and the film blurs the lines between whether that whether they mean that in a concrete or abstract sense. And I think the abstract connects most to the kind of like what we've talked about before in terms of like the eeriness of the early internet. The idea that, um, well, what are the scary things about the internet depicted in it? One is the idea of anonymity, the fact that it could be anyone telling you anything. 
Um, and it could be someone who is leading you into a trap. It could be someone like presenting themselves as completely other from who they are. And like, um, this is, you know, this is something that seems like alien territory in this it's age of like phone number verification. And like, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that like, you know, before 2000, or, you know, before the mid 2000s, it was actually very unusual for anyone to like explicitly identify themselves online. Mm -hmm. At least so I'm told. And it's like, you know, Everyone just goes by ads. Everyone is Wintermute or whatever. <laughs> yeah, indeed, um, indeed. I remember my first forays onto the internet being told being told by my father when we first got when we first got dial up and then broadband to uh, never use my real name on the internet because then they they could and now they, they could find to. you. Yeah, they could find you. And now it's illegal not to. It's, yeah, now it's illegal not to. Use real name. Yeah, it's so fucked. But um, yeah. They, so there's that, and there's you know obviously the kind of um. Ah, uh, wait. I just want to like re look back at some of like the stuff I've written about media because I think I've got some like nice little nice little bits um because everything kept coming back to theory <laughs> like I couldn't stick <laughs> to the point but like yeah the um the unheimlich of the early internet the I think I'm, it's most yeah one thing I wanted to talk about is just like the fact that like they're actually quite vague on what is scary. You know, they, they present the internet as being kind of scary and having these magical properties, but they leave it kind of ambiguous. Like, the main thing we see of the internet is just IRC chat. You know, it's just people using instant messaging services. But this is interesting in, like, the way it becomes a kind of borderline magical presence in the film. Like, the, the guy, Jim Seward, is described as being a kind of, like, a shun-in whose, like, main social life, in whose main hobbies are using IRC chat. And it's like, that's a really weird thing to have as a hobby, not because it's, like, unusual to spend a bunch of time there, but to regard just the act of chatting through that medium as the hobby, rather than just, like, you know, being a guy who hangs out. Um, and, and also it's just kind of, like, when the murders are taking place, he's just like, I'm just going to be on IRC this whole time. And there's this kind of, like, it's almost like a mystical act of, what the fuck is he talking about? It's just like, hi. Like, can you remember what your first conversations on MSN Messenger were? It's like, no. Because <laughs> like, it was most, I don't know, like, it's just people posting shit. I mean, maybe that was just my experience. I don't know. I think it was everyone's experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, hi. Um, hi. <laughs> hey. Maybe he's just doing that. Hey. Hey. You got there? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but yeah, also it's just like, I think the other thing I've liked up is just like the, the ethereality of IRC logs and emails and like this is another thing they talk about in the um in that like one guy's talking about how you know the 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 logs and the emails and things back and forth become a core part of the investigation of the kind of the doc you know the 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 dossier the legal dossier that that forms the pro Seward case and people are like oh yeah we just deleted it we just deleted it all afterwards because it's like it's not presented as something that we haven't quite instilled that kind of hoarder mentality around like preserving everything we have online. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to, I've got to back up my photos. I've got to do this shit. Um, so it's just like, you know, in the same way that like the BBC didn't regard television shows as a thing they would want to look at again, and so <laughs> created a machine for just destroying tapes on an industrial scale. The one I've made, I think I have mentioned it on Weird Signal before, but the, the one that really, really blows my mind is that uh, NASA wiped the, the actual like high quality videotape of man walking on the moon for the first time. So, yeah, because there's no way we have just like. <laughs> we have the video, because like, because what it was, it's sort of like they got the actual like footage beamed 
down from the moon and then they it, but it was it was in the format that couldn't be converted to television signal so they filmed the tv screens showing it and broadcast that we have those we don't have the tapes from the moon we have just like there were some like photos they took of the monitors where it's just a much crisper image but no it's gone that's why it looks so shit um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> god fucking damn it there's also kind of like i don't know like one actually i want to move on to kind of like the weird because like one thing that i was going to say is like you know we think about we think about like the fetishization of like low res media as being a fairly recent thing but like no that kind of always existed that kind of like that that capacity for distortion and unclarity and and the fact that yeah like early digital shit especially there were so many artifacts that were so many kind of like low res blurry photos which is like the main currency of cryptid lore these days um but yeah like um i don't know one let's switch from the abstract to the literal in that like was there something demonic to the proboscis luke like entity of like this thing that we've come to understand as the Jersey Devil, but maybe may just be sharing a woods. Baron, if you will. Yeah, because what you mentioned to me, Luce, when we were planning this out, was was the similarity... none of the shit about postmodernism. No, none of that. Uh, was the similarity of the... of It was the similarity of the film's plot to the stories of the Wendigo, Alder and Blackwood, which yeah. I then dutifully went away to, went away to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very good. Uh, he's he's going places is is young Algernon and and, uh, <laughs> and like the, the thanks to this part <laughs> and like the like the story of like the Wen- the Wendigo is it's it's a it's a, it's a feature in the uh, in the mythology of the um, of the Great Lakes nations of Native Americans and First Nation Canadians and so like the story of the Wendigo does take place in the um, in the Great Lakes regions, like it is in Canada, not in America, so mm-hmm. it is fucked Canada vibes uh, rather than fucked America vibes. Um, but the and like the Wendigo is kind of presented in the story as being a a, a a kind of it does have a physical aspect to it, but it's implied that it how it works is it's a kind of malicious force uh, or spiritual force which is able to transform you into a Wendigo as well, uh, and that's what is implied to happen in the story basically you know mm-hmm. the sort of like this uh french canadian trapper called a defago is um basically sort of like he gets wendigoed uh yeah and yeah. so there's and th- yeah and so that idea of the of you know sort of like the terror of this force being it's essentially the thing that possesses you and turns you into it and i think like one of the yeah, anthropological theories of the origin of of this is as was maybe as a way to try and uh was a way of interpreting certain forms of insanity for instance mm-hmm. or severe mental or violent forms of mental illness for, uh, for instance or it's just actually yeah. a horrible terrifying creature who lives in the woods uh and yeah the and so yeah so moving into sort of like fuck america vibes territory well, and little I, bit yeah. the Sorry. um I just want to read sort of like a, a very, very short passage from, from this. So did yeah. you want to do something before uh, I, re- I read that? I want that? to talk about like the fact that like the whole Wendigo psychosis point. Um, I mean, is this clip, is this bit you're about to read kind of illustrative is, of that? No, this is uh, the wide open spaces thing. Okay. So you, well, you do your thing. You do your yeah, thing. basically, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, you were talking about like codification of mental illness. Uh, I think one of the interesting things to... Um, about Blackwood's story specifically is it actually like diverges from that contemporary law around the Wendigo because it was you know a folkloric tradition but um but one of the key well but uh, yeah it was like a folkloric tradition but the details of it got codified into descriptions of particular psych psychical well like um psychological phenomenon 
uh, phenomena. Uh, well, no, a phenomenon. Um, which is, and so yeah, basically, wendigopsychosis is when is is the the symptoms of it are committing cannibalism when you have every option not to, <laughs> but like committing cannibalism in a kind of fugue-like state, which you know resembles being someone driven mad by hunger into committing the taboo of cannibalism, but. That you know that they the recorded instances of it are like you know people who were like like two miles from a, an outpost which they had been to and you know knew how to get to and stuff. So it was like there was no reason why they committed cannibalism, but there's something something just inspired them to do so. Um, and this this story doesn't do that, but does something kind of similar. Um, but yeah, um, what yeah? Because you you have I actually also have a quote lined up. Maybe I'll just try and find it while. Um, well, you find your one. Yeah, I was just seeing well, you, if there well, were. Yes, yeah, I have my. I do have my one here, but I just wanted to see if there was a. There's a bit where I do just describe what the Wendigo is, but I didn't mark it in the book, so we will just. Uh, okay. hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, did you want to go first? Uh, yeah. What was the quote? Okay, I had it like. Basically, yeah. Um, this can go back on the thing now, but like I had. Um, a particular um a quote i can't find now but like it again goes back to that thing when they're talking about like the jersey devil as being kind of like the cumulative spirit of the internet in that like it's it's this you know abstract it's this kind of like ethereal space where these forces born like a kind of tulpa like entity born of like human communication and the vagaries of the human mind acting on it and like it's there in the kind of like the wires and anonymous uh wires and circuit boards and anonymous messages and electronic waves and stuff but i think there was like a quote somewhere in the wendigo about um like the wendigo the madness or possibly something more literal being present being something that's present of like the big spaces or the rain on leaves or the mad the maddening silences or the kind of like persistence of like sounds and stuff and i just thought it was kind of good but like yeah i've got some comments generally about the wendigo that um that i wanted to like bring up but maybe you had a very good quote that you showed to me yeah so this um this is just really trying to um emphasize the the spatial dimension mm -hmm. of what we mean by fox america vibes yeah. uh yeah so i'm just going to read this um this is from, from the wendigo by algernon blackwood for this divinity student was a young man of parts and character though as yet, of course, untravelled. And on this trip, the first time he had seen any country but his own and little Switzerland, the huge scale of things somewhat bewildered him. It was one thing he realised to hear about primeval forests, but quite another to see them. While to dwell in them and seek acquaintance with their wildlife was, again, an initiation that no intelligent man could undergo without a certain shifting of personal values hitherto held for permanent and sacred. Simpson knew the first faint indication of this emotion when he held the new .303 rifle in his hands and looked along its pair of faultless, gleaming barrels. The three days' journey to their headquarters, by lake and portage, had carried the process a stage further, and now that he was about to plunge beyond even the fringe of wilderness where they had camped into the virgin heart of uninhabited regions as vast as Europe itself, the true nature of the situation stole upon him with an effect of delight and awe that his imagination was fully capable of appreciating. It was, it was himself and Defargo against a multitude, at least against a titan. 
And there's two things that are very interesting there. One is the emphasis on space, mm-hmm. on, again, that term of all these wide open spaces, which is something I think I will be, I will be using a lot over the next year, or I will be. And, and the unique the European at least, the unique geographic possibilities of the of the continental Americas being real big. Mm. Real big. Real big. And things aren't big here. Especially yeah. especially here on Piss Island. Things well, aren't big. Wasn't like uh, th- yeah, wasn't there a quote that you <laughs> Uh, stop me if you're about to give that quote, but like um, this was something you talked about in the Blair Witch Project, which summed it up really like succinctly, which is that like there's just a dis- a in terms of just on a literary level, there's a distinction in the kinds of weirdness that Europe and America produces in that Europe is small but old, America is big but new or something, but also, but then there's the kind of corollary quote from Burroughs, which is like, America's not new, it's old and ancient and hoary and full of secrets. Mm. Um... I wasn't yeah, going to go. mention that. But okay, yeah. but yeah, let's do a Blair Witch episode. <laughs> but the the other thing that, of course, is very interesting is the um, is alongside you know sort of like that like the recognition of you know like as it puts you know the primeval forests and so on is the is the invocation of the of the weapon. That mm-hmm. he's bringing with him, that sort of like, and you know, it says here he the first um, he knew the first indication of his emotion when he held the new point three oh three rifle in his hands and looked along its pair of faultless gleaming barrels. And something that like happens over the course of this story when when they encounter this thing, which you know, uh, regardless whether you would take it to be a supernatural entity or just some hitherto unspeakable capacity of the human mind and human body. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, and and something that goes along with that is the is the humiliation of the scientific method basically because one of because this guy's uncle is you know a rationalist yeah he's gonna flag that up yeah actually, he's yeah. Ra- and he's saying sort of like look 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 uh, and it's like very insistent you know there, there there has to be a reasonable explanation for all of this and but this is very but this is very much framed as a kind of religious superstition of the uncle and but he's in, he has these kind of like catechical statements he has of insisting on sort of you know every, you know that it, there'll be explanation for this you know you just you got spooked and all of that you know sort of like uh the fire goes of an excitable character and so on and he's very much feel like you like the you using the the language and the and the symbols and and methods of of science as a way of just kind of like superstitiously warding off the terrors mm-hmm. rather than actually having you know the sub the power that they purport to have to explain the world and specifically as well there is the invocation of of, of violence there that you know the relationship we have with this land is one where it is mediated by the um never sights on the rifle the, which the, the proves yeah. totally useless uh to him in the story yeah. as well and that, you know, and the inherent violence of the colonial project. Exactly, that exactly, that exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the on, uh, uh, which continues. Yeah. The on, which continues with it, with, with with it still with, you know, the U.S. still being a colonial project, mm. uh, in in many ways. Yeah, and that's like go read the Wendigo. Basically, <laughs> it's very very good. One thing, yeah, because like as the I can't remember the specifics of which what happens to which character, but I think like as the narrative plays out, it's like. People are affected differently depending on, um, like, how much stock they put in their kind of, like, rationality of, you know, um, approaching, you know, bending nature to their will. And how much religion from the old country or, you know, um, or, you know, native folklore credit they, they possess, you know, 
shielding them a bit or kind of like you know helping preparing them for this like sublime experience in a way that their reason can't um and like yeah i don't want to i don't want to i'm not actually not going to spoil this but like we get a very very kind of like powerfully ironic um fate of defago i believe it is yeah it's just um, it's yeah. really good it's really good right, out, yeah. out the black was great <laughs> yeah and i think kind of like if we're if we're kind of moving towards like wrapping up about um this I've got a good point to wrap up on. But if, if you want to, because yeah. we know we still have a whole other film to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, it's just I mean, we're at like just over the hour mark. Um, but yeah, we're just going good. Yeah. Um, basically, um, like just to tie this back to um, to uh, the last broadcast, what were that you know because this this par- this is a parallel and a much kind of like. I think because of the same kind of like comparison was made with Blair Witch and the Wendigo, but this is like so much more spe- specifically, you know, drawing on on the Wendigo. It is the lab broadcast, but like basically, it's it's a similar process of this guy who's like, I'm gonna, I'm genuinely interested in pursuing the truth and finding it forensically and using my kind of like my rational mind and my state of the art technology and my knowledge of cameras and my. Uh, Michelle Monarch, who's going to help me out because she's an expert, and he just gets completely fucked by it <laughs> in a way that's just so like it's actively dumb. It's just like he just wanders straight into it, and then it's just like gets possessed by whatever spirit this is without, without you know any fight, without any sign of contrition. It's just like there's no kind of lapse in character between him setting out to like you know pursue truth and justice and him just like cold-bloodedly murdering a woman with a sheet of plastic that happens to it be around. really violent. Yeah, like, and he's just like, so, yeah, the p- violence without passion, and it's, it's terrifying. Mm. Um, but I think it's like, this is like why, well, you know, if we're going to, like, the kind of literal, you know, we're going in the literal direction with this comparison, uh, if we thought about, like, you know, the abstract interpretation of what happens in the film is the eerie. In this, it's kind of like, very much a kind of like manifestation of the weird in the classic Lovecraftian sense, because you know Lovecraft, I, I believe, was influenced by Blackwood. And you know, yes, cite- he, he quotes Blackwood at the start yeah. of Call of Cthulhu, and he cites the Willows quite often as well. But um, the the weird rather than the eerie interpretation of this is that um, the gravity of the unknown, the magnetism of the unknown, or the kind of like the potency of the beyond, in that. It's something, you know, outside of the scope of our kind of, like, rational minds. But what is... The, the, the definitional kind of, like, weird is stuff that is inexplicable. Uh, that is, like, fundamentally incomprehensible to our, like, conscious human minds. Um, but because it possesses such force, it will reach out to us through whatever means it can make itself comprehensible. And so... Um, you know, we see this through, you know, the, the chain, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna quote that, that opening, opening passage from Call of Cthulhu, where it's like, um, the piecing together of such disparate knowledge will, um, reveal such terrible, such terrible get... vistas of understanding, and our, uh, yeah, 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 just, Let's uh, just find it, actually. Okay, um, uh... <laughs> I used to have it, so, oh, I'm just gonna Google it. Because it is just online. Yeah, yeah. So the transition of it. Yeah, I've got I've got a whole bunch of like things that I don't know if it's actually in. Uh daily text. Yeah. Um so, so yeah, um Alright, Sean, I'm gonna do it. Okay. Yes. 
The most merciful thing in the world- I'm gonna do the whole thing. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Sean is motioning like Vangelis <laughs> But yeah, so that is... Um, wait, yeah, there was a different section I prepared. The, the, some, yeah, the, the, so that's like the inherent weirdness of documentary horror the fact that like um it will yeah it'll reach out to conscious minds and enthrall them and destroy them through whatever means it can and like that's why documentary horror is so kind of well you know call of cthulhu just as blair witch just as this they're all kind of examples of a very you know intrinsically lovecraftian or you know was intrinsic to lovecraft's yeah, work yeah. of of documentary fiction and so yeah so i think that's like I think we've done justice to a good film. You should go watch the last broadcast. You, but, uh, but before you do, or well, actually, no, after you do, you can, you're free to do whatever you want. We're just basically what I'm saying is, and I'm onward to dash cam. Yes, or I, I yeah. might stretch my legs because my knees are starting to yeah. ache a bit. <laughs> Gosh, Are we about... ready to talk about Dashcam? I, I, I guess we have to be. I okay. have to be. How do we start an episode midway through? Because <laughs> <laughs> we are starting. Okay, second part. So, wow, what a great conversation about the last broadcast. I if loved it. it. Did yeah. you? Uh, was there? there was like, uh, I think there was one little rapping. Uh, no, I can't remember what it was. But yeah. Huh, how about that last broadcast, huh? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if only there were, like, a, a kind of, like, a, a, a film of the contemporary internet that captured these same themes and, you know, illustrated the evolution of the concepts poetically. Wow. Wow. Funny you should mention that, because in 2021, a film was released called Dashcam, yeah. directed by Rob Savage, mm -hmm. who you will may also remember made a little film called Host. I don't think I saw that. So, yeah, host is is host is twenty twenty lockdown COVID. Uh, let's do so. A bunch of friends get together and say, "Hey, wouldn't it be fun? W wouldn't it be like? Wouldn't it be such times if wouldn't we were to do? Wouldn't if we did a séance over Zoom? And uh, can can you put, can you imagine what might happen if you do that? Unfriended too. The dark web. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. So um, host dashcam and actually oh drop my pen and radio <laughs> so uh host and dashcam and both the unfriended films are all examples of computer screen horror as it is called which is a horrible awkward term it doesn't have like the neatness as a found footage but it's very much like it is found footage of the of the internet era of the dig of the present digital age of the yeah. of the ubiquitous internet era which yeah. yeah because although you know uh last broadcast is a film about internet horror this is still it is still a time where the internet is something that most people are kind of like know about but it is still relegated to the uh to the realms of like hobbyists more than anything else you know it's, mm. it's not it's not ubiquitous yet it's not until i don't know like i think it was about like the year 2000 that we got our first like 
internet connecting computer yeah i want to say 2003 i remember being the year when like kind of it became the future because high-speed broadband became a thing yeah like dismissed the old that kind of dial-up things that actually became viable to do shit like streaming Mm. and things because it was like youtube came only like two years later and stuff yeah yeah um i not to like i just like not to like start the analysis before we've actually summarized the film but i kind of like i think it might be useful to just draw a quick distinction between kind of um because I, I think it's relevant to the themes the distinction between found footage and screen horror because that nominally they are the same thing in that like here's something that's kind of like unmediated um like here's you know something that's been just dis- well yeah the distinction is found footage is found it's discovered mm. um and the idea is that like it's events happen that happened in the past and there's a kind of inherent mystery to it whereas screen horror is s- essentially putting you not just in the position of someone in a theatre watching a thing, but someone experiencing the phenomenon in real time. It's happening while you're on your phone. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. And exactly. you are a character in it. Yeah, in, exactly. So, yeah, because, yeah, like, with... Um, and, and, you know, just in case in case we've not made it obvious, you know, screen computer screen horror, the, the pre- is, you know, everything you see is happening on a phone or computer screen. That's, that's what is happening for, across the whole thing. Often with, you know, like, and like, uh, the Unfriended films are, if I, if I believe all of them are, you know, people doing like, um, you know, Skype or Zoom group calls. Uh, host is uh, done, you know, hence the name of it is, you know, it's done over Zoom uh, and so on. And Dashcam is a YouTube live stream mm-hmm. um, done from, you know, a Dashcam, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hence, 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 hence. And yeah, so the, the, so the synopsis of the film is is, is this. So ah, it's 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 quite peculiar. It's peculiar because what we have here is um, a a woman a musician Annie Hardy playing a character called Annie Hardy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's playing a a fictionalized version of herself or a caricature of herself. She and she is a funny fundamentally mm-hmm. she is a YouTube rapper. Yeah. And can uh, I, wait, could I the the pitch it's 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 Bandcar, the internet's only live music program broadcast from a moving vehicle. The internet's best. Best. <laughs> <laughs> Vital distinction. And literally apparently like Rob Savage and Co just found it. Like mm-hmm. is this this is a thing that she did during Which, the pandemic. Okay. They just found it and thought Let's let's have her in our film, and um, but the thing as well with this, and this is that uh, the character that she plays in the film is a COVID denying, pro Trump, anti vax, right winger, um, with a like her bedroom wall is covered in crosses and so on and so and, and so on and so on and so on. The character of Annie Hardy is difficult to separate from the woman Annie Hardy playing her but I do want to make it clear that when I I am talking about the character not the actual person because she does in real life does hold views along these lines like she does but I also am you know she is playing a character this is on this is a movie she's playing a character it's a character based on herself and so on but like I don't want to like I, I just you know an element of caution here with yeah. you know 
unless I say expressly differently, I'm talking about a character in a film yeah. that she is playing rather than her herself. I'm not saying that makes her like a good person or anything like that, because, you know, like she does have views like this or <laughs> uh, anything like that. And I did check out her Twitter and all that is spicy and she regrets making this film. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, yeah, but just to be very, be, very yeah. clear, what I'm not talking about the actual person. I am talking about the film. And that's yeah. all I shall say on that. Yeah. So, so what so happens in Dashcam? Which she's in this band car. She's in this band car. Yes. So see, this is what happens when they put us on house arrest for a crime we didn't commit. People start going apeshit. Exhibit A right here. Where's your mask? And where is your mask? Hi, I'm Annie Hardy and you're watching Bancar. The internet's number one live improvised music show broadcast from a moving vehicle. Here's how it works. You write in one she, word. So what she does is she, she like cruises around her town and she does freestyle rap on her, you know, on her live stream um, based on you know she's got you know she's got the chat going and look and she says look if you put uh, stuff in all caps in there, I'll go from yeah. there. You know that's what I'll do. So like I'll incorporate it into into what I do, and she gets uh and and uh, she gets like a, like called up by her old uh, bandmate Sketch uh, not Sketch sorry Stretch Stretch, Stretch uh, who invites her to come and like visit and they can like collab basically. Is that what happens? I can't actually remember what the circumstance. So she is actively invited. Yeah, like they know like they know she's coming and it's like they're doing like a, and that was one of yeah, the they, things. Yeah, because it's like it seems like she just like essentially because I kind of I missed that detail when I watched it. Multiple times now. Now I'm worried um, that I'm wrong, and yeah, like that's <laughs> basically because she just like, yeah. Though it's clear that like they at some point knew she was coming, but she does. The motivation does seem to be like she's, they, she's bored. She's she's bored, and she's like she hates the situation in America, and she's lonely. So she goes to visit a, a friend who. Was presumably, you know, we get sort of like fragments of they, their life. They toured that, together. They, they toured, toured together. together. She was like, he was part of. So he was. He is an actor. He wasn't actually part of the band, but like, uh, in this, he is a member of her real band called Giant Drag, who yes. released albums in the two thousands and stuff, and actually did a song for the soundtrack, which I will talk about in a bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's kind of like she's isolated, and then she goes. What I, what the impression I got is that she goes under the under the auspices that like. This is someone, she's, you know, someone of a similar temperament to her who she kind of, like, can find some kind of solidarity with or at least, you know, break from the kind they of... They can have a yeah, bit the, of a, an old times yeah, thing. Yeah, because she's completely alienated from everything that's in her immediate proximity. But what she doesn't bank on is the fact that um, this guy has now has, like, a job and a life and a girlfriend and has grown up in a way that she definitely hasn't. What I've, in fact, yeah. what I've written here in my notes is she's the friend from five years ago you said you should party, you, you would party with, but you immediately regret making that promise because she's so much all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, she comes to she, ruin his life. Yeah, basically, like, she turns up at his house when they've gone to bed and are asleep and she lets herself in and she turns, she's filming all of this and live streaming all of this and wakes him up by says, oh, this is 
how we used to do it. She just spits in her hand and smacks him incredibly powerfully across the face. And uh, that, that very much gives you an impression of the kind of vibe she brings. I've also been like, like some people have called it like an unlikable protagonist. I like absolutely I fucking loved love her. her. I'm so, yeah. I mean, like bearing on, yes, she believes horrible things. Like she's like, like we do not endorse these things, but she, she is so, f- I'm sorry. No, every film should have a character like her in it. Yeah. Uh, she, she's just so fundamentally unlikable, but she just absolutely loves her life. It's and her attempts <laughs> to bring Stretch back into her world are genuinely, I found, heartwarming. <laughs> Because like and they're what like is like she like would tells like obscene, obviously made up anecdotes about like how he got the nickname Stretch and stuff like that, and he has to sort of like immediately step in and say, no, that is it. I'm Stretch. I'm called Stretch because I'm tall. I'm I'm called Stretch because I'm tall. And then sort of turns to his girlfriend. It's just because I'm tall. It's just because <laughs> his his girlfriend does not like her. Uh, and and what basically what happens like the the plot is fundamentally extremely simple because he's got a, a gig to it as a delivery driver basically, and she comes along with him and they do like the dash cam live rapping thing he's our stretch he's a survivor got a job as a delivery driver <laughs> looking round for a bub buffet and uh the <laughs> in many ways all of life is a bub buffet isn't it <laughs> but the uh and, but, but, i'm really loving this like second half of the episode vibe we've got going on <laughs> <laughs> uh we we've had we have had some beers yeah. um yeah and yeah and basically she just completely like fucking ruins ruins his 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 his, his day because when they they go into a restaurant to collect stuff and she refuses to wear refuses to wear a mask or to check in and she then makes, like, a scene. makes it she causes a situation and he's very very unhappy and then when they get back to the house like his girlfriend is saying no she can't no, like like no she can't she has to go she just has to go so she just steals the car uh, she just she <laughs> just resumes band car resumes band car and but she also has stretch's phone with his like the delivery app or app on there and she gets like a ping to go and collect an order from from a cafe she, which she does go to do and basically when she gets there the the owner of the cafe said sort of like no it was a mistake you know i should have turned the thing off because they were, we were closed but then like she says actually but well, you could do me a favor you could a you if you've got yeah. a car you could you so give my attempt at the scottish accent completely dying on its ass smash cut to received english <laughs> but she yeah basically she tells her a sort of like uh i need you to drive someone not very fast like 20 minutes away i just need you to drive someone there because the usual guy didn't turn up and if you don't mind doing that and she brings a uh an elderly an elderly black woman out with you know a, a face mask on mm. uh, called angela and she appears very disorientated and very very unwell and 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 he does this and she takes it there she picks her up but uh, the, the old lady will basically literally shits herself in the car so they stop off at a, at a you know sort of like a motorway sort of like stopover station kind of thing and to clear her up and then the while, while this is happening she notices that the old lady has an Ariana Grande tattoo on her <laughs> stomach and a then a weird thing for an 80 year old or whatever yeah and then, and then a, a, a younger like middle aged black woman suddenly bursts into the cafe with a shotgun chasing after them and then I won't go into, I, I'm not going to sort of like describe everything that happens because there isn't like a tremendous amount to sort of like in terms of plot it's just like that basically that is the story from this point on she goes in she gets into like, a folk horror scenario she gets into a folk horror scenario because it turns out the old lady is like a psychic 
powered monster who can like tear people apart with her bare hands. Being being created by a cult of some kind, and uh, Stretch turns up to get his car back, and the two of them are find me. (laughs) (laughs) Presents phone. Presents phone with live stream on it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, basically, so for the rest of the film, they are being chased both by this like terrifying monstrous old woman with who can tear you apart with her bare hands and can literally like levitate and shit like that and also this uh, woman coming at them with a gun and this is where like it starts to get really wiggity as it transpires that the old woman is her daughter Angela and that whatever it is that they've done to her it's aged her by like 70 years or something like that because she's only 16 and it's uh, yeah and Various things, various horror things happen, which we will go into more details. Breathless chase through breathless chases countryside at night, through the countryside at night, through an abandoned theme park. Uh, Stretch buys it, the woman with the shotgun buys it, and then it's just kind of like her and Angela, and they arrive at the cult headquarters, basically, which is a fancy house in the countryside. By mistake, it's so funny. I'm not going to spoil that, but that is a very funny. It's very funny. It's very funny. Yeah, and um. We discover that whatever it is they've done, we never actually quite learn what it is they're doing. But that the but Angela has a this horrible parasitic like alien life form living in her, which explodes out of her mouth, and like Annie basically manages to kill it by crushing it with a car and uh, resumes band car. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? like so it's very there's not a huge amount to it you know basically yeah. that's why you know we, we, we've done this we've, we've done this kind of like whistle stop tour of it mm-hmm. right, so so where to begin where like, to begin where to I begin i guess like um the audience is probably wondering why we have uh kicked off fucked americana season with a film predominantly set in the uk aye like um, what's what's the deal with that sean what is the deal with that so this is a film of what I want to talk about a lot with this is the alternative to fact America vibes, which is cursed England vibes. Mm-hmm. And I'm present what we're doing here, we are following the apathetic path. We are engaging in a negative theology of fucked America vibes. We're defining it by what it is not, mm-hmm. how it differs from cursed England vibes. Are because you, with you me can't so have fucked Britannia. <laughs> you can't have, you can have cursed England, but not fucked Britannia. Um, ah! Okay, so there are three fundamental principles to the aesthetic i'm calling cursed england vibes uh decay claustrophobia and psychotic cheerfulness <laughs> okay so um and i i have these kind of like little um aphoristic little bits but i'm just going to r- rattle through very very quickly 
to try and give you an idea of what exactly it is I mean by that. So, okay. decay. The national spirit is a cloud of spores. <laughs> Rising damp as a way of life. The antiquity of our institutions is not proof of maturity. It is evidence of rigor mortis. The only movement is the fluids released by decomposing matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Claustrophobia. Wait, so wait, no, I, wa- I, wanna, <laughs> oh, do you I want, want to, uh... something that you... <laughs> um, so, no, you flagged up a very funny thing. I think it's from Trash Future, which is... Oh, yeah, my des- word, yes. Yeah, describing... Sick building yeah, syndrome. Yeah, England, England or Britain as a country with sick building syndrome, which is, yeah, which is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Look it up, it's quite funny. Yes. <laughs> uh, claustrophobia. The first mistake is to think you can outrun it. You've forgotten there are no wide open spaces. There are only tunnels and burrows and caves. It's never sunny anyway, so I bother with the overground when you have the underground. It's nice how easy it is to get to Stonehenge. You can see it from the A303. Most of the London Underground is actually overground. Mm. And finally, psychotic cheerfulness. You'll pass the piece of sponge cake and you notice that a kind of mucus has been used instead of jam and your beaming aunt says, eat up now. Do you want more weak lemon drinks? (laughs) There is something amorphous and globular wrapped around Big Ben, and a gang of crying schoolchildren are told by by their teacher to smile and wave at it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so, like, I'm throwing those out there as ways of trying to just kind of, like, giving us, like, immediate, like, aesthetic uh, shorthand for what I'm talking about here of Cursed England Vibes. It's about decay, it's about claustrophobia, and a certain kind of psychotic cheerfulness. And these all do kind of all thread together in lots of ways. You know, the a lot of the claustrophobia comes from the sense of decay, and a lot of the decay comes from the psychotic cheerfulness, the insistence and things being actually fine and we ought to be happy about it. Mm. You know, and the and which also and um, which again re-emphasizes that feeling of claustrophobia and that there is no way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the thing about living in this country. There is indeed no way out. We've seen to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes they have so they so dashcam features several locations that really embody the spirit of cursed england vibes we have the cafe that they co- actually collects angela from and i am obsessed with this it's called the beano cafe mm-hmm. um we also have the like the motorway you know sort of like um stop station as well there is, we have the countryside, but it is a bleak and non-picturesque countryside. So it is Sheffield, by the way. I think we pinned it down. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sheffield listeners. And finally, we have we have a decaying theme park. And like these, and yeah, and I think in particular, the decaying theme park, that could very much be, that could be Fox America vibes. But they, but... But the so the, the the places which really embody the cursed England vibes of this film, I think, really is like the Beano Cafe. Like it just brings together so many of these, so many of these qualities, you know. Because there's this, um, there's this kind of um, 
it often feels like there's a certain like ramshackleness to everything in the country now you know like there's this sense of we can't we can no longer expect anything to work and that's just what we need to adapt ourselves to level up sean (laughs) uh the and in particular and this is both like this is on an institutional level and on a level of physical infrastructure that everything really is just falling apart because our in particular our rail infrastructure is just it was 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 designed a very long time ago for a very different climate to the one we have now and it is literally now too damp for the for the railways to work it's uh and it, or it is too hot solidarity uh, with striking rail staff yes yeah. <laughs> rmt forever uh, RMT contribute universe. to strike funds yeah yep. the uh so and 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 this and you know you know, we can be good materialists about this. You know, there is no mis- the, the origin of this isn't mysterious, really. It is just you know decades of, go- of aggressively pursued government policies of refusing to invest and selling out everything under our feet and so on. I mean, um, is this where we want to talk about hauntology, or are we kind of holding that from? We're now? moving into that because I want to talk about that in term and you want to talk about the nostalgia thing first yeah because i mean on just like well i mean you mentioned the thing about like being good materialists like because yeah rather than rather than the nostalgia thing but um i just kind of wanted to like make an observation that like yeah the, we, we we're talking about these things like they're strange biological processes but they are things that have a bit of very particular history and that particular history is uh heavily enmeshed with the project of hauntology in that, you know, going back to the analogy of, like, the UK as, as being a country with sick building syndrome, essentially, it's like, the, the whole idea of sick building in- syndrome was largely a fabrication, but it was, you know, this kind of magical thinking that buildings get sick. They just, like, they, they reach a certain point and they start deteriorating in a way that's just inevitable. But, like, no, it's, like... When we and you know when they talk about sick building syndrome, it seems to be like hospitals or public institutions or things built mid-century during a very different time of the UK, um, when you know the UK was looking at a very different future. And the reason why uh, the kind of you know right-wing media, um, the media, <laughs> was so in, you know so happy to take up this term is because like it fitted in with a um, convenient narrative of uh, de you know of withholding public funding, not investing, um, controlled controlled collapse, enabling the expansion of the private sector. Ma- managed decline. Managed the decline, yeah. Managed decline on a national scale, exactly. Yeah, yes. and it's like kind of, um, I mean, we're going to talk about more like um, the idea, one of the key things we're going to talk about is the idea like, no, hauntology has an inherently critical dimension. It is a left yeah 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 don't, don't yeah, do, yeah, yeah. yeah okay yeah, so yeah. Don't, don't get too ahead of ourselves lucy okay okay, okay. <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. my turn <laughs> yeah yeah it's your turn this is your bet so i'm i think i'm better at responding to things than pitching <laughs> so the um okay i'm going to um god there's so much i can talk about and i've written so much in my notes i want to clarify why, why, why i'm talking about psychotic why i'm calling it psychotic cheerfulness i'm using that i'm using the word psychotic in like in the clinical sense here, indicating you know sort of like a break from reality rather than just sort of like crazy crazies you know um it's a faux cheeriness that understands itself as embodying the so-called blitz spirit but comes across instead as pure delusion it's the cheerfulness of a psychotic break it's a menacing cheerfulness mm-hmm. we can't that we live on a cold, damp island with no prospects. But, and I 
kind of like North Korea. We can still play this game of pretend, though, right? You know, yeah. like we we can still we can still constantly we can still like embark on these huge activities of let's pretend mm-hmm. uh, to to rather than confronting confronting you know some like the grumminess the, the grumminess the grubbiness the grubbiness I'm going to stick with grumminess actually yeah. grumminess of it all and it has a kind of and this which which in turn leads to a certain cultural infantilism as well you know sort of like the and like this is like even when we've have had you know um these events which are meant to be sort of celebrations of like of the mature and dignified institutions of the country in particular the monarchy this always now goes along with a with a, a of, of well of, of a kind of thing of dumbing it down you know of of still sort of like presenting it as as spectacles that can be very easily digested into the capitalist media machine and so on mm-hmm. rather than like even even like reckoning with these institutions in their own nominal terms you know yeah uh you know sort of like and you know like the you know you have the queen having tea with padding and paddington bear kind of thing mm-hmm. you know um so in particular to, to to bring it down to bring it to the film to bring it to the film uh in particular um like i said i i keep on thinking about the fucking beano cafe because <laughs> Who's that for? Is the thing I kept like asking myself. Why would you have a cafe called the Beano Cafe in this year of our Lord, as it was then, two thousand and twenty-one? You know, because the for, uh, and I should explain to like uh, to, to listeners who might not know who who will be most listeners actually who don't know what the Beano is. The Beano was the Beano was a comic that uh, my dad read. That's the le- that's I, like I read yeah. <laughs> which, which I, I, yeah. I also don't know. But yeah, but that's mm-hmm. that's what it is. Like the Beano is sort of like. When your dad was was a, was a, was a wee wisp of a lad in short trousers, your dad read the Beano after school. Yeah, mm. that's what the Beano is. It was it was you know a comic, and that's where Dennis the Menace and and such our version that, of Dennis the Menace. Our version of Dennis. The, did we originate it, or was it an American thing that we? I don't know because like because the, there's the American one, which yeah. is very very toothless compared to ours. Like, like ours would just fucking knife you. Dennis uh, the Menace <laughs> is like kind of the flagship character of the Beano. However, like the Beano, what the the thing is like when we talk about the. The the '90s Beano I remember like hadn't I think hadn't been the the entity that it was for that long and like you know when you because I weirdly like oh, a bit of if I if you'll indulge me a little bit of personal history like I read the Beano utterly mirthlessly I don't know why I did it because like, yes. not once did I ever laugh at it like a I think I laughed laughed chuckled once at a Backstreet boys back, <laughs> bash street kids oh the bash street yeah, where, where yeah they were just like occasionally there would be moments of just boys. um <laughs> of just like needless like cruelty which was kind of like funny in a nihilistic sense that i appreciated but like overall it was just like god this it's just a lot of setup for like corporal punishment <laughs> um like yeah yeah it's uh i i used to read it in the waiting room of the barbers that's that's yeah. where i yeah it's that kind of that yeah. kind of thing and that was like a weird old barbers in it wasn't in an old it wasn't in an anderson shelter but it felt like it mm. was in like a repurposed anderson shelter yeah. it was very odd but just to uh, tie off that point quickly like yeah a classic beano was much more kind of adventure comics Kind of like it's yeah. kind of like it's from the same era as the Eagle yeah. and like other ones like my dad mentioned like my dad has mentioned to me like the the Victor and I think the Valiant Funk knows what these things are you know but like uh, I did actually although I did actually used to read sort of like great big like hardback collections of uh, 
Dan Dare serials I would get from the library because that was just quite good science fiction oh, that fun. Had that really good kind of like, well, like uh, that got rebooted. They, they, that got a gritty reboot in the <laughs> 80s. Like, th- I think it was Dan Dare. Gritty reboot in the 80s through 2000 AD. Oh, fuck, it did, didn't it? Yeah. Yes. I love how this has just devolved into like... We're talking about comics from our childhoods. Oh, <laughs> I, I, it was only quite recently I finally parted with my massive collection of 2000 AD comics wanted to donate them to charity but like uh, <laughs> and I have had like the deep the deeply unchristian thought of I hope they weren't worth anything you know because like <laughs> they weren't worth anything no, they, weren't, mind, they were not know. worth anything I yeah. know. Uh, fuck me but yeah oh god 2000 AD Judge Dredd oh man mm. anyway can I cut up no, no. <laughs> open call to readers there's a bit in like one 2000 AD strip I've no idea where it occurs because I just remember having like just possibly like a couple scrap pages of a comic where like this guy is told in some sort of dystopian future situation he's told he has no future and then he gacks up a spider and keeps vomiting spiders and then there's a giant spider or something and I I was never able to find out what the fuck this was but it was kind of it left gnarly. an impression gnarly as fuck I do like, wish yeah. I, I do wish I had kept some of them now actually because there's mm. some I've like since part of them I thought like I would like to revisit for nostalgia purposes which have like proved to be and they proved to be our are difficult to get hold who's, of our physical editions of them now who's that friend but... we have who's a comic writer we should get in touch to ask if he knows what any of these things are <laughs> we'll figure it out yeah, after the show after anyway the show. oh god the film um, yeah 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 Yeah. so okay so so the Beano Cafe the Beano Cafe so and like the I love how it's shot because it's the first arriving in the Beano Cafe is like when the horror actually starts up until mm-hmm. that point the film's tone has been quite I mean, you know you're watching a horror film. Like There is still like the ambient tension that you'd expect just because of the nature of the film that mm-hmm. it is. But this is when we the horror actually starts. And there's this fantastic shot of her just looking down the length of the cafe into just like at night. And it's just darkness, mm-hmm. you know. And like she calls like a couple of times, you know, saying, you know, here to collect an order. She uh, attempts attempts to eat a pickled egg, which are... I, I like weird British food, actually. I'm a bit defensive about weird British food, but uh, but pickled eggs, we, we, we do get rid of those mm-hmm. after the day of days. They are... They are inedible inedible things yeah, just uh, like, like just to interrupt a tangent with a tangent but like if it if it were actually for kids it would be called the Rick and Morty Cafe <laughs> <laughs> and it would be really expensive <laughs> and it would be in Brighton <laughs> sorry I just couldn't let that pass anyway continue and at the moment they would be they would be <laughs> very basically <laughs> okay we need to think about a rebrand what else are the children like <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking hell okay so like the Beano Cafe the Beano Cafe like it's very like it's Stick to the Beano Cafe the Beano Come on, Ca- we're, gonna, we're gonna get through this we're gonna get through the Beano Cafe oh Jesus <laughs> so the Beano so I've said it so many times now Jesus Christ Bean. okay Bean. <laughs> stop saying no more no more <sighs> relax oh breathe. dearie me oh fuck yeah no one needs to know no one quick, needs to know quick like Maybe I want a cigarette. No, I don't want a cigarette. I'm cracking open a bean <laughs> Rip the guy that... Long-time Beano writer who died at age 89 recently. Oh. Yeah, yeah rip that guy. Someone's still reading it. But apparently, someone has to be. Someone yeah. has to be. Ah, oh, <laughs> okay. okay, so the Beano, the Beano Cafe. Okay, look, so this is, I'm just going to read what I wrote in my notes, okay. Nice. The Beano Cafe is a dark tunnel that extends backwards. There's no natural light, just fluorescence and the radioactive glow of pickled eggs. 
and this is this is you know the claustrophobia that I've been talking about. The area over which dash cam happens isn't very large. Like it feels like everything is about twenty minutes drive away from everything else. You know, and and again, like that's the whole the re one of the things that um something that Jeff Dyer writes about in the introduction to Baudrillard's book America is he he comments on the fact that like Baudrillard is obsessed with how fucking big everything is there in every sense, you know, sort of like the houses, the cars, the roads, and the wide open spaces. Everything is fucking enormous there. And Dyer, I remember him commenting, I can't remember exactly what he says, I don't know why I copied the book with me, but he says that is actually quite a typical thing in, like, European travel literature about America to, like, just be really obsessed with just how fucking massive everything is there and i remember when like, i've only been to america a couple of times and like once when i was like a kid and the second time was to a wedding in uh it was into a wedding in california but not like fun and sexy i'm just gonna do this anecdote actually not like fun sexy california it was a tiny in a tiny little town called turlock that was in, it yeah i was trying yeah. to remember the name in the middle of almond farming country, uh, our pal Rich told me. Like, he literally said, oh, you're in the middle of almond country, I see. And the thing, and, and, and I, went, I went there, so like it was like January 2016 or something. It was the day after David Bowie died, I remember. It was when I flew out, so it was weird vibes. And it was just such a, a and... And we and I arrived in Turlock at night. Like we, I got picked up like uh, uh, the dad of a fam of like a family who were friends with like the the bride basically, uh, like a like a great big sort like. And so because Americans are always exactly what you expect them to be. It's fast. It's brilliant. Like <laughs> and he was just sort of like the absolute archetype of sort of like the big jovial, convivial, ever so slightly conservative, but appears to be kind of decent like patriarch of a large family uh his name was ralph he was a postman and um the and yeah and <laughs> so we arrived in so me and like a couple of americans who were going like they we arrived in turlock at night and i was just like the whole journey i'm just staring out the window and the thing i just couldn't get over was just everything is so big everything is just fucking enormous and like in that area as well, which is sort of like, you know, because most of California is agricultural land, which is something I did, I did not know. And it's you just have these huge, like, grey, dark fields where, you know, almonds are going to be growing, but they're not growing there at the moment. So you just have, like, these, like, sh shrubs with no leaves or fruits on them. And just going, in, going on for absolutely forever, occasionally punctuated by these absolutely gargantuan towers of like industrial processing plants of some kind i think they're like fertilizer farms or something like um, uh, plants or something and like with like and you know just the massive massive wide american roads weaving through everything and the thing is england isn't like that everything is really small and cramped because we're a tiny little piss soaked island small and old small and old everything is small and old and it's yeah exactly 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 and there's something about like the fact that like dash cam happens over actually like a really like small geographic area that really just really like bespeaks bespeaks that as a quality and there's as well as that like there's the way that like the Bino Cafe like I said it just go keeps on going backwards you know it's like you're looking at the entrance of a tunnel and you just have like the window like panes at the front and then the further back you go it's just artificial lighting you know because it's like you're burrow burrowing into the earth itself or into this kind of like amalgamation of all of the buildings around it almost is what it feels like and 
So you have that, and you have with that, like, the obvious sense of decay that everything has, like, there's something very, very uncomfortable about, you know, sort of like a, you know, like a, a aluminium countertop cafe at night. There's something just very, very bleak and very, very, like, fucking backrooms about that. But the, what, the thing that really just sort of, like, obsessed me with this is the, is is how this kind of leads into psychotic cheerfulness and in particular how that manifests it manifests as a kind of um into the ubiquity of the nostalgia industry because again this is why i kept on saying like who is it for why why would you name a cafe the be no cafe you know because that's meant to be like presumably presumably you're doing that because you think oh the kids will like it but the kids have no fucking idea what the beano is right like especially the kids now like i barely knew what the beano was you know when i was a child and like a certain you know sort of like the kids these days certainly have no fucking idea what the beano is you know they want the freaking morty cafe <laughs> <laughs> with their squanches with their plumbuses oh, and, their... <laughs> and their cronenbergs and their cronenbergs and their and yeah uh, but we can't Say that can't anymore. find that funny anymore because of what that man uh, allegedly 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 for legal purposes did but yeah oh god anyway the and the answer the answer for whom is it for isn't exactly the parents because the thing is sort of like we're both in our <laughs> 30s and uh you know sort of like we're of the age where at least our parents were starting to have children and so on so like Par- yeah, like the, 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 yeah, so so am I. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm accepting applications for a husband. Anyway, the um the the thing is like parents now. That's not like a, a cultural reference for them. You know, like the Bino Cafe doesn't exist for an actual parent of today. It exists exclusively as a as a cultural reference for the boomer for the eternal the eternal unchanging spirit of the boomer the main right. political base of the country yeah, exactly exactly uh, it's peaking a little bit just like maybe just like lean back a little bit Hi. yeah just so, at me at me like, at you at, at me you. so literally the beano cafe is for my dad you know that's who it's for and the question then is <laughs> what's going on there why would you have this why would you have something like that just for my dad basically and the answer to that is like you're saying like, like you just said you know the fact is that the boomer the property the, the property owning boomer of a particularly you know sort of like um background and sexual orientation and gender identity and so on who are the the unchanging political basis of the entire country they what they have around them, what the culture industry of this country is 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 geared to towards more than anything else, is is keeping the specific cultural reference that makes sense to them alive. You know, like it's it's I mean, this being said, I do quite like Dad's Army, but it is odd that that's a thing, you know, like that sort of like if you like on Saturday evening television there is always like the re- the repeat of dad's army and again like the question the question there being who is this for I mean it's and, a timeless good time I mean actually yeah actually that was a terrible example because dad's army is actually just good like <laughs> it's last of the summer wine you know that's getting a that's due 
probably have have had multiple like cultural reevaluations at this point. Yeah, possibly. So no, we no. Don't and I to... do actually quite. I I actually have a lot of time for only fools and horses, which I think in its early its early its early ser- its early episodes are actually very very on point. I think so. That yeah. make Peckham shit again. <laughs> the. Uh... <laughs> So it's completely off topic, but just like it is a homophobic joke, but just like a line that lives on, that lives rent free, as they say, on my head that I just do just find very funny. It's the episode where the three, like the three of them, like Rodney Delboy and Grandad, like go into the country manor. It's the one with the chandeliers. It's like like one of the actually very, very good ones. And they want to try and impress the gentry in this manor house they've ended up at. And he, tell, he tells Grandpa he can't cut any when he's in there. And he tells Rodney, they don't want to hear your story about the queer magician. <laughs> <laughs> what about that bit where Delboy falls over? And the bit where Delboy falls okay, over. I'm just gonna like, just like um, <laughs> I'm not gonna like try and discuss this or even explain this on the show. Just look up Stuart Lee's thing about like the ritual of only falls and horses and the Trigger Man, because <laughs> like because that is folk horror and British conservatism are like two sides of a thin line that does not exist. Exactly. Mm. So. Again, so the psychotic, so the psychotic cheerfulness, the sense of decay, and the claustrophobia, these are all things that, in many ways, are kept alive by this thing I'm calling the nostalgia industry. You know, and that is, and I don't like mean just like fucking into like the grey suits of the BBC, right? I do also just mean the class structure and the and the you know sort of like uh, the deeply entrenched projects of disenfranchisement and so on that like are constantly churning presences uh in this country you know this is both you know this is both like literally how just like how things are put together this is also the the ideology that animates our institutions mm-hmm. uh at, at all levels and so on and it's it's is and it is deeply infantilizing and it does prevent it's, it's such an obsession with roots but it pre- prevents the possibility of any kind of new growth almost you know and the and that's what that's what cursed England vibes are for me, you know, sort of like the sense of just keeping everything as still and as predictable as possible and trying not to notice the rising damp that's actually just like literally making everything impossible to live in and is actually going to kill all of us, whoever we are. Actively denying it and coming up with ever more elaborate narratives to deny it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And there's, um, and actually, and actually again, like, if you want to really learn more about this, like listen to Trash Future. If you want to listen to more podcasts, the Britonology series and the, and, and the Britonology episodes, they do because they that just like really really gets to what it is I'm trying to articulate about the sense of just the sense of damp in the air. You know, that's just mm. something that it's um there's something it feels like just something especially British about the about damp about rising damp as a phenomenon. I know it's not like something unique to to us, I assume, but it feels like it might as well be. It might as well be something that like you let people know about when they first arrive here so you should be aware of the rising damp uh, <laughs> it's everywhere and we try not to think about it um ah and something this is a very dark note actually but just something because like something that i was thinking about yesterday actually coming because well, i was listening i was listening to the the britonology episode yesterday they put out about spare about the prince harry's mm. book and talking about like uh, uh, you know the fact that like the upbringing he had at sort of like schools was you know fundamentally in an, in an emotional sense quite abusive and they were t- but one thing they talked about that fascinated me was that like the very young board like very young years boarding schools that like just the children of like that strata society are sent to where they have to bathe together in like big 
rooms filled with giant sort of like old timey metal baths where matrons come and scrub them but yeah but like the thing from that is something that like is one of the things to just be aware of when it comes to this country and why our ruling class are the way they are is one of the reasons they are at least is the fact that like these are the institutions a lot of them grew up in and as children and basically like this isn't a joke I'm making here this is true but like a lot of our like senior government ministers and politicians were probably sexually abused in these institutions like I don't and I'm not true detectiving this thing I want to be clear Uh, okay maybe a bit but like like I'm not not saying you know I'm, I'm not saying it it being because of anything more mysterious than the fact that like these are like closed self-policing institutions where men in particular men and women men in particular have more or less total power over the lives and bodies of children in the same way that the catholic church and the church of england and and so on also have produced these things but it's just like something to bear in mind that like maybe one of the reasons these people are kind of the way they are is that like it's not most of them probably had something fucked up happen to them at school. They was like, these are all like, in, obviously, from just on a human level, like physically and emotionally abusive environments to go through. And you will end up on the other side of that with stuff, you know. And like, so yeah, that's parts of it as well, you know. So like, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of kind of weird that like the British version of QAnon hasn't really seized on this in the same way. No, this is also the why, American model. This is also why I did want to mention it because, like, because you know, like the character Annie Hardy in this film, Dashcam, like she's in, like she believes in that. Like she talks about, like she makes jokes about sort of like, and you know, oh, you know, the, you know, we're taking this to go into the blood sex orgy and stuff like that, and the adrenochrome harvesting factories and all of that. Like, like she's you know, these are the things that she's she's on about in uh, while well, she's doing Bandcar and the and but yeah and because like the thing is like we are getting that over here now and it's something that did start before the pandemic and there's a fantastic i always feel a bit embarrassed when my sources are just other podcasts i do read books i do have a copy of a thousand plateaus literally to one side of me right now but there was a fantastic <laughs> but there's a fantastic series that i can't remember exactly it was by tortoise media and i think it was just called hoaxed uh, you'll find it if you just like look at what tortoise media have done but it was a fa- it was about the the hampstead heath child sexual abuse ring hoax basically which was and and this is actually starting to lead like this, this is starting to preempt stuff i want to talk about with the inevitable when we inevitably get onto fascism oh yeah uh but i do have i haven't forgotten that we promised some hauntology we will get to that in a minute yeah. but yeah the because the Hampstead heath sexual abuse child sexual abuse hoax was a very much a middle class hemp smoothie sipping like yoga class kind of satanic panic thing rather than being you know because the origins of that in america were very tied in with the paranoia as a fundamentalist evangelical christianity um while this is a different a different kind of that thing but it's still clearly related to it wait was this Um, the actual cult thing the purported cult thing was the was the was the kind of yoga class weird shit okay so no i mean sort of like the the yoga class types were the ones and i say this as someone who was disappointed to find out my yoga the yoga studio i went to last year has shut so i can't go back to my yoga from nyanga class i found out yesterday i'm still coping with that like i am a yoga going 
cunt. Uh, and the, um, but the, you know, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking about a particular you know, sort of like class and social grouping there, you know, like, and what happened was basically, you know, just li- like listen to podcasts, but like in the, the small, t- in, in, in like brief terms is um, a, a mother and her sort of like boyfriend, basically, uh, who was a guy called, who called himself like Uncle Hemp or something like cursed like that. Basically, they fabricated that their children were being um, satanically abused um, by their biological father and a cult based around sort of like the schools and churches of the Hampstead Heath area. And this did directly, and this was like 2018 they were doing this, and this like really, really directly fed in and helped animate QAnon shit in America. And you did get, you know, sort of like this network of... um, anti-satanic ritual abuse activists in inverted commas like helping people come from america to sort of like lurk outside schools with knives and shit like it's something that happened and like to rescue the children from the satan satanist pedos basically and all of this is was like and you know as was the case with the satanic ritual abuse panic in america total fabrication literally just make made up no nothing no no sort of like actual dodgy stuff being covered up in a different way it's just the pure invention of these people out of these people's heads basically and but this being and but have but yeah so that so we did have like a british version of the QAnon thing which is still something that like the wheels do are still moving about that on, on, on online somewhat but yet like it's interesting like you said that sort of like it would just invent something totally mad and fill it with uh anti-semitism and homophobia and transphobia and so on rather than it, like having anything to do with the actual sort of like real forms of institutional abuse of children that just like clearly exist and are documented to exist in this country you know like it's yeah, I, I don't fucking know. Okay, I'm going to talk about hauntology now. Just com- like completely taking this train yeah. in a different direction because that got real dark. And mm. hauntology is fun because hauntology yes. we like hauntology because it's it's safe spooky. It's safe spooky. It's cuddly yeah. spooky. But it's not just nostalgia. But it's not just nostalgia, and that's the thing. That's the thing. This is the important thing. So inherent the ha- critical dimension. Thank you. So the haunto thing, as I've taken to calling it in my notes, the haunto thing. So. So the Haunto thing often gets kind of accused of being nostalgia driven is the thing or rather like let me rephrase that like the question about the relationship between hauntology and nostalgia is a bit of a vexed question it feels like because um, because I like people producing and engaging with hauntological media get very resistant to the accusation of nostalgia and precisely because as I said then you know it feels like is an accusation that's being made, but this is just nostalgia. You know, there isn't anything more to this. It's just sort of like, you're just trying to make music that sounds like um, kids shows from when you grew up. Like, that's what this is. You know, we shouldn't pretend it's more than that. And like, spending any time listening to sort of like the output of Ghostbox would show you that is clearly just an, an incorrect assessment just because of how, just because of how good it is. Like, even if it's not your kind of thing, like, it is well executed music shout out it's to got all our boys to all of our boys to our circles and to our circles girls, advisory but, our yeah. circles focus and so on um but the the thing but where where the haunto thing departs departs from that basically okay is um basically i'm saying it misses the point that accusation so like hauntology isn't simply a replaying of familiar old comforts it is it's rather it's a 
it energizes and activates the past. You know, it grants it an agency to disrupt the presence, which is what a ghost is, right? You know, that is, you know, exactly, you know, what, 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 you know, like Derrida like begins with talking about the ghost of Hamlet's father, because, you know, the arrival of the ghost is this, is like this thing out of, out of past, out of the past, arriving in the present and announcing that the work of the past isn't actually over yet. That's what it does. You know, that's what the image of the ghost in folklore is. The ghost has unfinished business. It's come into the present to fuck with things, basically, and to demonstrate that the assumptions the present has about itself are false and that these things we've told ourselves are over and settled are neither over nor settled and have agency still. Uh, and... Right, so like, and okay, like, so, and this is where we re, and when we really start to get into how it differs from just being a nostalgia thing, like, this is why you couldn't have a, a hauntology of Dad's army. Although I am throwing that out there as a challenge, I want to see what someone might do with that prompt, because like the the products of the nostalgia industry are there to comfort with their familiarity, while the 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 the, the aesthetics and the the aesthetics, the symbolism, the kinds of sounds, literally just the samples used in a lot of hauntological music and media, is is unsettling. Like it's meant to be unsettling. That's why it's often like. You know, these crosses over into kind of like horror territory or like weird fiction and so on. You know, because and and and, and why like the kind of stuff that people talk about most for, uh, most as being like haunt like haunted media from the past is stuff like Children of the Stones or Sapphire and Steel. Actually, more so than Doctor Who, actually, which has a kind of like BBC paternalism running through it. You know, while things Sapphire like Steel is very much kind of like the scrappy like challenger to that. It's I have to admit I've never been able Me to neither. actually get through a whole Sapphire and Steel serial because they do they do feel like they're from the 70s and they are very long and slow. Uh, but I'm convinced they're good because uh, I've been told they are. But yeah, the... But yeah, Mark the, Fisher said they were good. Ergo. <laughs> but the... Um, <coughs> excuse me, let me just have a little sip from my tin. The, so already we're saying here that, you know, that the thing, what, haunt, what Haunto stuff is trying to do is trying to unsettle us and to throw us off balance, you know. And the... On the, and the other thing here that is very interesting, this is something like uh, has often been picked up on, is the fact that a lot of the times there's this kind of like in the background, especially about like the advisory circle stuff, there's this kind of indications of a certain benevolent authoritarianism, you know. Um, and what that means basically is that sort of like, this feels like it's the music of sort of like, the Socialist Republic of Great Britain circa 1975 from the parallel universe. You know, mm. that's what, that's actually what we mean. That's what everybody means when they say that specifically. That's what all hauntology is. Um, and like with like some of the logo tones of the advisory circle who are fan absolutely fantastic and you should go out and listen to them right away. Um, they'll have like lines like the advisory circle, we make the decision so you don't have to. Civic defence is common sense. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, like their first, no, I think it was their second EP was is just called and it's just like this it is just like so much sort of like thinly veiled very british authoritarianism in this sentence is uh this their ep was called mind how you go 
um god i love everything they've done it's so good and yeah there's and more recent stuff actually because like um one that i came across on the uh the freak zone Stuart mcconey is uh warrington Runcorn new town development plan fantastic name and like and literally i was talking to you about this yesterday on whatsapp i sent you like a track from one of their albums which is just called fanfare for the working man <laughs> um so and okay and embedded in all of this i know i've used the expression authoritarianism here like which yeah whatever when we talk about socialism but like what is going on with all of this is there is a kind of a sense of sort of like this is these are intrusions from a an alternative history of this country which had a distinctly socialist rationalist character as an alternative to what we've ended up with which is very again like is infantilizing is claustrophobic is decaying and is mad in you know but in the in the oh you you don't understand all quite mad sense (laughs) of the word mad the and a lot and in and kind of challenging that is that sense of sort of like these things you know and although like i said you know it would not necessarily be utopia no it would be actually would be um but like (laughs) but but challenging that are these are these intrusions from another way that things could have been if things had gone just ever so slightly differently or, or you know for, you know we're not you know we're not going to speculate too much about that but that's that's what the haunto thing is doing and that's what separates it from nostalgia the nostalgia industry is there to comfort us and to uh is there to comfort us and to reassure us while the haunto thing is there to unsettle us and to and it acts as a kind and it does function as a kind of mirror image of the nostalgia industry. So you know, and you do have like some similar, excuse me, some similar like um, as like um, cultural. You know, I mean, lots of similar to cultural touchstones coming through there, and like like even like odd ones like Bagpuss, for instance, is something that like you get reams written about in like like the Haunto the Haunto times and so on. <laughs> um, but there is also like. Bagpuss was kind of like cool and scary, you know, sort of like, yeah. and they're getting. There's it... that, oh, it's not Bagpuss, but there's like a similar kind of like weird antiquated um, cartoon involving a cat where like Prodigy sampled it in the 90s. <laughs> um, ah, I'll, I'll put that in, I won't put that in the show notes. I don't, <laughs> I can't keep making these commitments that I will never forget, but yeah. We'll just close out with Firestar. It's got a cool gnarly meow effect. <laughs> oh my god, so there we go. Okay, so. We talked a lot there about the Haunto thing and Cursed England vibes and the Beano Cafe. My God, we talked about the Beano Cafe. <laughs> but it feels like we haven't spoken very much about the film itself thus far. And I, and I am going to pull us... We're getting there. We're getting there. I am going to pull us pull us back a little bit to Dashcam itself now. Okay, so... the like that, Considering Dashcam is a postmodern film, like, something that we've already stated there is, you know, like, there is the, like cliched postmodern thing of someone playing themselves in it you know sort of mm-hmm. like or like even if it's a caricature or fictionalized version of themselves you know like she is she's called annie hardy and she's playing someone called annie hardy you know like mm-hmm. and you know this is like all already you know that's a very very sort of like on the nose pomo thing right but mm-hmm. the but if we are like talking about this more broadly in terms of like the of the um collapse of meta narratives or grand meta narratives Annie Hardy, the character Annie Hardy, is is such a perfect product of 
you know, 20 years after last bro- last broadcast, you mm-hmm. know, sort of like 20 years after last broadcast announced the death of truth. Um, <laughs> what we end up with is Bandcar. Uh, because in particular, you said something really interesting there is that we didn't end up with no meta narratives, is that we didn't, is that we ended up with many of them. Mm-hmm. We've ended up with a lot of competing grand narratives of history and the cosmos all occurring at the same time in contradiction with one another on the internet right like so so specifically that on the internet and one of the things with QAnon and with all of like and with, with QAnon and modern American fascism which has come over here as well you know we, like we do have elements of that here now um one of the things that is so tip interesting about it actually is that it never needs to be quite about the same thing two on two consecutive days you know like there are certain key themes uh in like the QAnon conspiracy you know about you know the cabal and uh, Donald Trump and so on like mm-hmm. like you have to have certain things there for it to, for it to be itself but then there's a lot almost every, almost all of the details are stuff that um just kind of come along you know and they can end up being dropped or are then picked up again later and one of the most notorious things about the so-called q drops themselves is it stated that it's literally stated in that sort of like uh, in one of them that um not everything that we say in these is real because we have to engage in disinformation uh, as part of our project you know and immediately what you've done there is you've given uh, everybody involved a get up clause for when things don't happen the way that you said they're mm-hmm. going to so what's this information you know like we have to we have to keep our enemies guessing uh but the so there is something inherently fluid and nebulous about it. it is constantly reinventing itself it is adopting new characteristics it is branching off it is shooting out into new and different uh directions Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of just wanted to come in a little bit about this. I know, like, we're definitely going to be talking about fascism eventually, and this may be a little bit of a foreshadowing. Um, but um, this is something that is, like, intrinsic to the concept of fascism. Yes, this is... Uh, yeah. This is the whole thing. The we're whole going thing. into fascism now. Yeah. Like, is it cool if I just, like, do this bit? Um, yeah. Yeah, so basically, like, just to go, like... There are sort of, like, some quibbles about, like, what is fascism and things. Um, And the idea that, like, basically, kind of, like, people make all these comparisons of, like, you know, extreme ideas of fascism and communism. And as if they're kind of like, oh, that's extreme left, this is extreme right, obviously they're the same thing. But, like, one of the defining things about fascism is its kind of indefinability in the sense that, like, when we had actual fascist regimes, we didn't have... Like, there is actually such a thing as the Fascist Manifesto, which I'll be talking, which I have already talked about in uh, Fugue States, episode two, um, <laughs> where basically, you know, there was a, ma- a Fascist Manifesto, but it was actually written by an anarcho- anarcho-syndicalist uh, who was, like, friends... That, was, that wasn't... Was that Gentile, or was that... Uh, it's some... I can't remember No, because, exact- like, Mussolini yeah. and Gentile wrote the doctrine of fascism together. Yeah, right? well, like... It was someone, it was, you know, it was like with the uh, Rijeka, um, the Fiume situation. It was one of the, he co-wrote this like manifesto with uh, D'Annunzio, uh, who you can learn all about <laughs> on our, our now still unreleased um, uh, Fugue States episode. Not even I've heard about, it. Yeah, <laughs> no one has heard it except me and Rich. Um, but uh, yeah, basically, um, like, and what's iconic is like, D'Annunzio became the like um, 
the figurehead of this, like, proto-fascist state, but his contribution to the manifesto was, like, the poetic flourishes and, like, little introduction bits at the beginning. Because, uh, like, fas actual existing fascism didn't have, like, doctrinal, you know, doctrinaire um, political systems in the same way, you know, you would have, like, you know, in the same way that, like, even today the Communist Party of China needs to explain why the current, like, uh, Xi is she saying you? Is um, is actually you know tied to um, Marxism with Chinese characteristics and you know is a manifestation of historical materialism. Um, but yeah, you you didn't have that with fascism simply because like fascism, its its preoccupation is actionism. Its its preoccupation it's, is action over thought. Its dynamism. Its um, it doesn't need. It it has no interest in making sense. Is the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like even the people, the ideologues who have tried, you know, po po neo fascism tried to do it with Julius Evola, you know, making it. Oh, it's a Nietzschean thing actually, and it's like a third way between liberalism and and communism and things. But yeah, it's basically. It's it's the ideology it's the ideology of extreme vibes. It's like you you know, and this is getting back to your point about like the different narratives. It's like it's not a cohesive narrative, but it's a cohesive vibe. It's like oh, the libs are wrong. This is you know, it'll just like be a different iteration of look at this you know cultural Marxism happening and stuff. But it'll be just like you know a very freeform thing. And this is why fascism is so has been so perennially difficult to defeat because you kind of can't. You can't, you can't like fundamentally prepare for a debate because it's like you know they're always insisting to debate them, but you can't you can't debate misinformation unless they've already told you the misinformation, and if they keep switching up the misinformation, then it will just like it'll become you know it'll just be like oh look at the look at the commies and or libs getting owned exactly yeah yeah and uh, like there was a remark there was a remark that hitler made once which we're about to quote hitler good lord oh he said wait he, we're, we're, in a negative way in a negative like, sense <laughs> the um where he where he said once um regarding so like he said um regarding nazi party he said the strength of our economic policy is that we do not have an economic policy, for instance. <laughs> and yeah, actually, and and yeah, like which isn't, and this isn't. Obviously, we're not saying that there is no semantic content whatsoever to fascism. Like it isn't just vibes, because like it is inherently, you know, it is paranoid vibes. Yeah. It is in, inescapably racist. It is inescapably chauvinistic. It has to be because it is about. Because it's about a suspicion about a, a suspicion towards everything that isn't like that and has no interest in anything as well, frankly, you know, basically as gay as thinking about it and reading books, you know, like it has no time for this because it is about it is meant to be a kind of like a dynamism and, an, and a trust in spirit and in intuitions, you know, in refusing to think almost, you know, um, fuck. Yeah, I remember something that um our mutual friend Rowan. Hi, Rowan. Hi, once, Rowan. Once We've said this a lot. He's very good. He's brilliant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> once something said he he said to me is is that uh, you don't get people these days like declaring themselves fascist because they became convinced by Mussolini's economic theories. You know, like mm -hmm. that's not what it's that's not what it's about. You know, that's and it's and that's never been what it was about. You know, the it was uh, you know like over the course of like fascist Italy in particular, sort of like it just over time becomes more and more indistinguishable from Nazi Germany. Like, like something that, like, apologists for Mussolini will sometimes claim that, oh, there was no, like, inherent anti-Semitism to the original Italian fascism, which is 
kind of true. Mussolini had a Jewish mistress, which is kind of true. But this is and like Mussolini did did apparently say that like he regretted that they adopted race laws or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but like the whole fact that he could do that like says everything. The fact that like the original formulations of it were still deeply were still deeply racist and xenophobic. And like Mussolini did make like made anti-Semitic remarks, but this wasn't um, the motivating ideology behind the Italian fascist movement in the same way that anti-Semitism was really the only thing that Nazism was ever about. Mm. Um, but just because it becomes expedient to do so, it becomes that you know, like it doesn't, and it doesn't matter that previously, like uh, Verducci had said that uh, you know we don't have we have we do. We have no anti-Semitism in fascist Italy because we have no Jewish question because our Jews are good Italians. You know, but like, you know, it doesn't matter that he says that because now it, all that matters is that he says now it's sort of like, oh, we, 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 you know, we're standing with our Aryan brothers against the, against the Semitic menace. You know, that's, it doesn't matter what happened five minutes ago. It never matters what happened five minutes ago. No, you, it does, like, but if you try to make it make sense, you've already lost the game, basically, mm-hmm. is the thing with all of this. Yeah, and, like, I think you've even written on the idea of, like, Nazi fascism and syncretism, but, like, one of the interesting things, just, like, to, you know, short point, short point, uh, (laughs) that I want to flag up is the fact that, um, like, I mentioned earlier the whole, like, facts and, you know, we use the kind of facts and logic guy as a kind of, like, you know, you know, your Ben Shapiro's of the world are, like, facts and logic guys because they are, you know... uh, owning the libs who don't understand reality or want to deny reality because of postmodernism. What's interesting to observe about kind of like neo-fascism in particular is that these viewpoints, the facts and logic thing, is like ultimately a lip, you know, is a system, you know, inherently liberalism um, basis for things. You know, it's like, it is, that is the core of the liberal ideal of, you know, like, um, the, the free flow of ideas and the univocal truth. But what is significant about neo-fascism is that they just, you know, they saw that these were useful things to have. Yes. And so that that the take on it that you've especially seen with kind of, you know, like post-MSI uh, far-right Italian movements is the idea that, like, yeah, we're actually defending liberal institutions now because they're liberal institutions that are owned by white people and we're just we're defending them from the kind of like black and brown people who want to distort them and the Jews who want to enable them to do that. Exactly. And this was the same thing that like why although it had begun before before then, but why the coronavirus pandemic really energized these groups, especially in especially in America, but it also made them visible in this country in a way they hadn't been so much up until that point and then the the what they are advocating then these far these extreme right groups in, in various different guises was freedom mm-hmm. you know so like it's, it's the individual liberty is liberty small and small states maybe not so much fraternity <laughs> and certainly uh, was egalite 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 sounds too sounds too gay yeah uh, <laughs> but yeah but the and and how it would you know because like you would say like for example like and this is, you know, one of the things that makes turf so grim and grim, very fascinating. Again, it's all that is a lack of coherence in their in their thought. But like, because you'd think that, for example, that with the the, the COVID denying conspiracism, like how they often talked about like the sanctity of individual liberty and so like, I should be able to choose if I get vaccinated. I should be able to choose if I wear a mask and so on, which can be articulated in non conspiratorial terms as as like 
political points on their own. You know, like you can do that. You can make a non instead still wrong, but non crazy argument for like why you shouldn't have vaccine mandates and so on. You know, like you can do that. But why you'd think, for example, if someone was being consistent with those viewpoints about like, you know, I should, you know, I, no one should have the power to tell me to do what to do with my body. If you're being consistent with that, then you have to be on board with trans rights. You know, like you just have to be like that because that is a consistent application of that. That's well, there's a lot of people who have very particular things, you know, they want to happen with their bodies, you know, and like who the fucker, who the fucker, the Tories or the state or the church or whatever to tell them they can't. But that isn't what happens because then it becomes so we have to protect the children from the sex predator trans people who are going to convert them and so on. Like it then immediately flips over into that like, again it doesn't matter that this is an incoherent movement it has no they have no interest in that and the thing and i something i got really interested in as well was thinking about vaccination and this might sound a bit odd but vaccination and racial purity it, okay like the because the way that the way that nazism in specifically like articulated its like the necessity of of its of you know of its anti-semitism in law was what they called like racial hygiene the idea so like we have to you know keeping the race clean keeping the blood clean by not allowing the foreign element into it and this and is to, just to modern biological it. science speaking <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the 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 uh, extreme resistance to uh, vaccination among far right groups, it's like they took that logic, but rather than applying it on a collective racial scale, it's about an individual's right to natural blood. Like, I want to keep my blood, the blood that I've in, I've from my ancestors, clean by not allowing this thing into it. It's and that's like so, again that feels like very very frankly very postmodern. That's mm. very atom like the like this is this is a postmodern fascism, a fascism for the atomized age where the individual's cleanliness, literal physical cleanliness, as well as a kind of moral cleanliness, is all that matters more matters more so than the cleanliness of the race, although it never gets beyond especially you know it's it's never more than like two seconds away from becoming exactly that but that's what it focused on at the time that's what it focuses on um with all of this you know um i'm going to get to the bit where i'm going to read again uh so just to really really like and this is a long quote but just to kind of like articulate exactly to try and articulate this a bit i and i'm just and also because to quote from someone else is to give your own words authority so basically okay look here's some deludes and grattari you motherfuckers here we go here we go this is from this is thousand plateaus this is uh micropolitics and segmentarity okay doubtless fascism invented the concept of the totalitarian state but there is no reason to define fascism by a concept of its own devising there are totalitarian states of the Stalinist or military dictatorship type that are not fascist. The concept of the totalitarian state applies only at the macro-political level to a rigid segmentarity and a particular mode of totalization and centralization. But fascism is inseparable from a proliferation of molecular forces in interaction which skip from point to point before becoming to resonate together in the national socialist state. Rural fascism and city or neighbourhood fascism, youth fascism and war veterans fascism, fascism of the left and fascism of the right, fascism of the couple, family, school and office, 
every fascism is defined by a micro-black hole that stands on its own and communicates with the others before resonating in a great generalised central black hole. There is fascism when a war machine is installed in each hole, in every niche. Even after the National Socialist State had been established, micro-fascisms persisted that gave it unequalled ability to act upon the masses. Daniel Guevin is correct to say that if Hitler took power, rather than taking over the German state administration, it was because from the beginning he had at his disposal micro-organisations, giving him an unequalled, irreplaceable ability to penetrate every cell of society. In other words, a molecular and supple segmentarity flows capable of suffusing every kind of cell. Conversely, if capitalism came to consider the fascist experience as catastrophic, if it preferred to ally itself with Stalinist totalitarianism, which from its point of view was much more sensible and manageable, it was because the segmentarity and centralisation of the latter was more classical and less fluid. What makes fascism dangerous is its molecular or micropolitical power, for it is a mass movement, a cancerous body, rather than a totalitarian organism i could i could keep on uh, keep on reading there because like it, and so on in a similar fascism so similar fashion excuse yes. me uh <laughs> but again sort of like the the image there of like of how they are like and it's such a, it's such an interesting and such a, a compelling image the sort of like again like trying to think of fascism as being you know the right version of marxism leninism or Mao Zedong thought you know is completely to misunderstand it because fascism is much more like cancer. You know, sort of like, there is a logic to its growth and how it spreads and metastasizes. But it's not something you, you can speak to or reason with. It's this thing that happens, that can happen to a society, you know. And in particular, what they're talking about, um, micro-fascisms, micro-fascisms, and how every, anything in society, including in this day and age, including even radical feminism, is perfectly capable of undergoing the metastasizing process of collapsing into the paranoiac black hole of you know sort of like of a of a rampant of a, of, of, of excuse the word combination of words I'm about to use but a rampant militaristic anal retentiveness an absolute terror of the possibility of penetration of any kind coming through and that the all movements in and out have to be total perfect moments of regulation you know and you and, and again so this goes back to the vaccine thing you know so the app you know and because recently there was the um, or so recently i think it was last year now but there was a news story in new zealand of a of an anti-vaxxer couple who refuse who and i think like the courts just basically said you know we're just going to do this because like this is madness who were refusing to allow their child to have like a life-saving medical procedure unless the hospital could guarantee blood transfused to him was non-vaccinated and so on you know and again and and you know that's just a cynic to hear for the whole thing right you yeah. know um i know that's taken this quite far I away I just wanted quite to far of, away from dash cam, I to, but... well i don't know one one little kind of like button onto that i wanted to add is the idea of um well no it's just like there was i think around like 2021 kind of like late pandemic there was a really weird i think it was some dumb like federalist article or something that was basically like have the right been able to learn from the lessons of Foucault better than the left has? And it's like, and and they pitched it around the idea of like physical autonomy and biopolitics and Foucauldianism. And like, yeah, it's that's that's kind of wild. 
Um, but yeah, I think like just yeah to drag this kicking and screaming back to the film dash cam. I think it's like this sets us up interestingly to you know, talk about the character of Annie. I'm wanting to say Annie Hall. Annie Hardy. Annie Hardy. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, like we we are like with this lot <laughs> with this with this whistle stop tour of what the fuck is fascism and like. Everything being, not everything being fascism, but fascism being in everything, potentially. Um, like, what what image of the fascist are we looking at in Annie Hardy? Because it's like, she's, she's, she's got, Stretch is Arab of some sort of, like, Middle Eastern descent. I don't know what. I th- I th- I, he, he's, he's Brit- British Asian. Yeah, Asian, he's British yeah. Asian. And, and she's like, she's a kind of, you know, she 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 does rap music. She was in a kind yeah. of like grungy punk band, and is presume would presumably have had a life surrounded by people that we are much more on board with. But but she's become this thing, this thing in in you know, in the film dashcam, which is just this destructive, this agent insane, of chaos, yeah, this. chaotic force come in to fuck up everything. I also just like. I think there's like a very pertinent quote from like an interview with the director. I think this was in Bloody Disgusting or something, where like uh, they 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 frame it as like it's an interesting take on the final girl trope of classic kind of like you know like late twentieth century horror. The idea that like rather than being kind of like the intrepid survivor, which she kind of is, it's the sense that if she had done any, if she at any point had acted like a reasonable human being and made a sensible decision, nothing bad would have happened and nobody would have died. Spoilers, she doesn't, they don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, what is, what are we looking at here with Annie well, Hardy? Exactly, because what what is so interesting about her, about her is, and this is again one of the features of, like, modern internet fascism, is how deeply, like, soaked in irony it is. You know, like, she like loves that she's being so outrageous. You know, she knows exactly everything she's saying, right? Like, and that, and and she, and it is all per- literally a performance. Like, she's doing this for her fans on her live stream. You know, sort of mm-hmm. like, and like throughout the whole film, like, like going up in the corner of the screen are like comments from her fans, right? You know, <laughs> like like uh, cracking wise, being racists, and so on, and the and fuck like she. So she like this. So. So the character uh, Annie Hardy in the film is like the perfect sort of like postmodern fascist subject. In fact, in like there is just gone completely beyond any kind of cohesiveness or cohesion with this. You know, like it doesn't appear to be like like a racial character in her like it, to to her paranoia. Although she does make some like Black Lives Matter quips and so on. Uh, like, but I, I, said, like, I but, guess they don't want to get their window broken. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's a bit also later on where like when um they like run over the the black woman trying to kill them when Stre- when Stretch says so like we sh- should we call the police and she says what are you white? <laughs> um but the uh, and so on but like and like she's very difficult to pin down in all of this because she is just such like a perfect like stream of chaotic conscious energy you know going through this and everything is just so performative and so ott and so completely unreasonable that like this is why like she does feel like she's the perfect like fascist subjects of the postmodern age you know they're like that that there is you know she like other than like an extreme paranoia you know because there is like because like again but it's like the motivating force behind a lot of this is like is is a paranoia other than like that kind of like extreme paranoia like she's just 
she is just so completely all over the place and it's mm-hmm. just this this nebulous cloud of reference that she has with her like she brings sketch sketch i keep calling it <laughs> sketch she brings stretch an organite pyramid as a gift for instance <laughs> which is clearly like she's doing sort of like she's doing it as a joke thing, sort of like oh my god i got you in it you know kind of kind of thing but she also definitely believes in it you know mm-hmm. like and it doesn't matter that like she kind of obviously simultaneously doesn't doesn't believe in it because it because none of it matters none <laughs> of it actually matters if you because there's no interest in cohesion or or coherence with any of this it's it's just it's just pure vibe she's mm-hmm. just a distillation of 4chan 8chan vibes right yeah. you know like and that's also like why you know like i think we both kind of fell in love with her is that like it's just the kind of brutal nihilism of it is just very it's just really engaging like to a watch ball of id just I'm... to kind of like yeah just like kind of the the, the, the savage joy of um of the fact that, she, yeah, the kind of, you, you talked about the kind of, like, the savage joy of cursing, of, like, saying outlandish things, and, like, there being a kind of inherent, like, power, like, a jouissance to that, which she's, like, she but she's not even acknowledging that there's a jouissance, she's just powering through. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, like, just to kind of go back to the, the thing you talked about, like, this performance of a character, it's, like, we've entered a very interesting meta dimension to that in the way that, like, almost kind of like you know one one point i actually forgot to mention about you know the various layers of like mediatization and untruth um with you know i'm not like kind of i am picking up a point i forgot that i wanted to include it in the last <laughs> broadcast to include in the last broadcast bit but the fact that like blair witch project was actually far more compelling as a piece of found footage and they could get away with presenting it as something actually found yeah far more easily than something you know like like Dashcam did, or even did like Cannibal Holocaust had like you know really ropey like fi- obviously fake interviews and things. But like yeah, the idea of like performance is very significant because it's like yes, a last broadcast is like not believable in the same way, but at the same time that's kind of the point that like it's everyone playing a part. Like we've got the kind of like uh, Michelle Monarch is like intrep you know her line her lines are really badly written and poorly delivered this is like i'm gonna keep on going until i find the truth (laughs) and stuff but she's like she's doing a character and as much as like avcast and locus are doing in their like stupid public access show um but so that's like you know we're seeing a continuation of that like meta dimension in this and the fact that like yeah as you mentioned up front like annie hardy she was in this, she is, we're witnessing a kind of, like, conscious, like, exaggerated performance of herself, but then she's now reneged on that performance, and some diff, and yet another Annie Hardy has surfaced to swallow this bubble of self-awareness, it seems like. And, like, also, so I need to fact-check this, because I was try- quietly trying to Google it, but, like, someone mentioned that, um, that, um, the, the director Rob Savage has some connection to like one of the Red Scare podcasts, like Dash and Eris Gover or whatever. You, you said and, this, yeah, you said yeah, this. Yeah, and I actually couldn't find that while I was quietly trying to type while you were speaking. But, <laughs> but like, regard that, you know, that, that would, I'm saying that would be very interesting if that was the case, but I'm not going to bother checking now. But it's like, she's kind of like without seemingly without realizing doing the perfect performance of what Red Scare were doing, which is also kind of, you know, uh, very much a performance of like uh, uh, of like i don't know have you seen that like there's this 
wonderful i don't know but i use the word wonderful sparingly but like interview with both of them where there's this guy just kind of fucking with them in the interview and he's like what so you guys are like racist now what's up with that and dash is like uh yeah we were we were in socialism before but now we're, we're, we're like far far right and it's like yeah no that's like that is the the living epitome of this like postmodern fascism because it's like they are they are those those you know ironic fascist subjects um performing the part of you know sardonic like you know new york hipster liberals uh in dime square um but yeah it's i don't know i, I just found that kind of no that, I, that is fascinating I, the, yeah i just want to read i do just want to read a quote from uh rob savage here about about the actual making of the film and uh so on because again so like just to emphasize we are talking about a character in the film, not a person. And like mm-hmm. he does say here, I have a huge amount of respect uh, to Annie for trusting us to work with her in this way. We met, um, obviously, virtually. I spent some time with her chatting on Zoom. And uh, obviously, Gemma Hurley, his co-writer, and uh, Rob and Jed spent a bunch of time chatting with her and, to- and talking through things. It was difficult. We were shooting at a time where a lot of the rules were only just beginning to form in the UK about how we could manifest a production in the middle of COVID. There's lots of changing, fluctuating rules and conditions. We asked a lot of people, Annie included, Annie especially, in fact. She was coming over. There's lots of quarantines, huge amounts of testing going on, and I think it was that collaboration again. She fully steps into our gang for the film and uh, became a real part of the film family, as you always do with these kinds of shoots. Uh, Savage also made a point to highlight, whatever her beliefs, she followed the testing regimen. We had no cases on the shoot. She was super respectful. So, like, she's not... You get so, like, it seems like, okay, look, she wasn't a dick to them about it. You know, like, even if she did think it was whatever it was that she thought. Uh, So, I did want to put out then, Mm -hmm. in interests of fairness and balance. And also, Um, I just kind of wanted to do a quick, like, kind of dial back to your your um kind of like taxonomy of the you know the, the your codification of cursed englishness and like particularly the relentless the relentless cheerfulness yes um because i think that is that's kind of like something that can be held up as a comparable or kind of like equivalent form of this postmodern fascism that you know this like hyper irony that we witness in Annie Hardy but coming from a very different uh, context but like the thing about the relentless cheerfulness i find which i've you know i have observed that no no country that has um successfully reconciled with the evils of its past ever tries to pretend it's this cute you know it's like <laughs> like you know the, the 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 kind of the relentless cheerfulness is like the un- the 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 under the thing underscoring that is blitz spirit is this idea of like oh we beat the nazis and every all the kind of like stories you hear about heroism in world war 2 are like oh you know we managed to trick those stupid jerrys into believing our pilots were eating carrots when actually it was just our pure pluck that brought us through and it's like yeah like the uk never has never had to properly you know been put in a position of military defeat where it has to reconcile with its past evils no and so it's just like it gets to pretend it's funny and cute exactly and, and this, it, is, this is what i was saying about the how basically how, how how the nostalgia machine functions and how it has to insist that things are again but the past is fundamentally settled and that's what the haunto thing unset unsettles and as well as that, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, and um, you know, the co- is the constant culture war stuff around uh 
you know, um, uh, you know around stuff like roads must fall, around um, pulling down the statue of uh, I forget his name, a slave trader in Bristol, and so on and so on and so on, and how like the the way that people like have responded to that negatively again feels like a very very childish a sort of like insisting sort of like no it can't be like that it's because i say so you know like and insist is, insisting yeah. and it does feel deeply infantile because there's the, the insistence somewhere it feels like they're saying sort of like no because churchill was nice actually and it just yeah. being like but but not wanting to think through the fact that like maybe he was maybe he was mean maybe he gassed more curds than Saddam maybe he killed a whole bunch of Indians like Exa maybe he wanted to use machine guns on striking miners inspired by the words of Mussolini you exactly know? it's yeah. it's um and it can't and there's this and again there's this infantile insistence that we can't think about the nasty you know like we can't think about it or like the nasty you know, sort of like um and that you know evil is something far away and easily contained and is certainly nothing within what we have here and although sort of like with like actually to go back to the subject of spare the prince harry book <laughs> although there's an op you know like the, did we already talk about that i thought we talked about that between the... we may have done okay but yeah. like prince, we talked about that during the break okay but in in prince harry's spare like although like he's obviously so like a ridiculous individual and it's deeply dumb and funny for that man, yeah, you know, for his role, football, he's no longer HR rage, but to hear the Duke of Sussex talking about unconscious bias is just such a weird sentence <laughs> to say. All this being said, at least some, at least some of the reaction to him has clearly just been from people saying sort of like, it is despicable that he would call the heroism of our past into question. You know, that's... That's just the therapy speaking. Yeah. <laughs> that is certainly part of it. Even though sort of like he is like articulating it in bare, you know, barely comprehensible terms whatsoever. <laughs> and apparently it was still like, often uses language to talk about sort of like, you know, sort of like sending our finest chaps over to die in these wars, which are actually quite bad. You know, sort of like, it's, you know, and so on. Like, he's, like, he's clearly, like, he's figured out something's not right, you know? <laughs> God bless him, even if he, but yeah, it's, um, oh God. Deary me, fuck. We live. You see, the we thing is, hell. we live in hell, by which I mean England. Ah, uh, uh, deary me. So that was dash cam. Yeah. Um, is America purgatory? It might do, be. Do, do, do. Maybe we might, can think about. Where's, where's heaven? Uh, <laughs> 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 Don't do not explain. Do not explain your words. Ah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Oh fuck! Okay, right, let's. Well, we we have to wrap up now because we are actually in uh, in not too long. We're actually going to be recording another one of these as a little bonus thing. So, yeah. for, which we will say nothing about uh, at the moment. I uh, fuck! I'm tired. Uh, well, don't be too tired. Well, I won't be too tired. Day. Yeah, maybe we'll go for a nice invigorating walk until such a time as when I've been Sean and I've been Lucy. And we are saying, we're telling you... We are affecting the characters of podcasters to invoke to you... That you should stay weird. And keep it signal. Good night. And, and we are going out on what is going to be the anthem of Fucked Americana season, Baron Eden by Marionette 8. Drop it. Sheep.
Don't feel 